607. Warning. Access restricted. Please submit to DNA. Verification. Processing. Verification complete. Access granted. Welcome. Hello and welcome to the Monitor Room at the Christian Geek Central Podcast, a biblical examination and celebration of geekery and geek entertainment, as well as the official podcast of ChristianGeekCentral.com. I'm Peter Franson from Spirit Blade Productions, producing entertainment and resources to hopefully equip, encourage, and inspire Christian geeks like you and me to live in the freedom and purpose that Christ has given us. For more information about Spirit Blade Productions, you can check out SpiritBlade.com or Patreon.com slash SpiritBladeProductions. Productions on the show today. Yet more reactions, and this won't be the last week either, to the biggest video game news of what I'm calling UNE3 2020. This week that includes the Guerrilla Collective Indie Game Events, of which there were three spread out over three days, the PC Gaming Show, the Future Games Show, the Upload VR Showcase, and EA Play Live, which of course had news on uh, the big upcoming Star Wars game. Then I, uh, I'm i going to unload a bit about my recently renewed enjoyment of turn-based RPGs and then also share some of my initial reactions to DC Comics' Doomsday Clock story, which I just finished reading for the first time. Uh, plus, more assorted topics based on your questions, comments, feedback, all that stuff, and my Geek Week. You can check the timestamps for more details, but here we go. Nice, another achievement unlocked. I bet I got more achievements than anybody I know. Yes, sitting in front of a video game for five hours a day is quite an achievement. See, this is why I don't like talking to you. Then why don't you spend more time with real people? Because real people don't respond to console commands. Wow, Peter. You unlocked yet another achievement. You must have more achievements than anyone you know. Behold. You are great, and greatly to be praised. Yeah, better. Uh, reacting now to the Guerrilla Collective, which was four streaming events um, over the course of about a week. First, we had the uh, Black Voices streaming event, and then days one through three of the Guerrilla Collective live streams, all presented uh, over on IGN's YouTube channel. Uh, so there were just a ton of games. There were a ton of games, and so as I've been doing with all of my videos and segments celebrating what I'm calling UNE3 2020, I'm just going to focus on the games that are of particular interest to me. I tend to be kind of an RPG type of game. Gamer, although I'd like other games that have RPG elements, and mostly I just suck at action games, and so I just look for games that are cool and interesting and aren't going to be too hard for me to get through. Uh, so what looked promising, and also console, I, I tend to focus on console, PS4 in particular these days, but the first game that jumped out to me was a new the Distant Light. This one is coming to PC and consoles, but the release window is TBA at this point. Uh, over on anewthegame.com, the 
developers write, A new The Distant Light is a single-player open-world action and, and adventure game for PC and consoles that will appeal to fans of platforming, combat, exploration, and visual storytelling. In-game, you are a child with limited resources, waking up on a distant alien moon 20 light-years from Earth. You must carry out a mission of critical importance and solve several mysteries, discover a dangerous alien world, and seek out game-changing equipment, upgrades, and vehicles to expand your options for combat and exploration. Uh, now, I'm a big fan of what I call symphony-likes. Metroidvania gets tossed around a lot, but I specifically like the Metroidvanias that have RPG uh, upgrades so that I can grind against weaker enemies so I'm you know, not as, uh, as much required to be a skillful, twitchy player uh, when it comes to the, the harder enemies. And it, I, I can't confirm if this has an experience system or not, but in some extended gameplay that I saw, you're clearly gathering these orbs that are collected from almost every enemy you destroy, um, and I'm not sure if that, that's adding up to a currency of some kind that you use to upgrade. I'm hoping that it is. So much of this game just looks beautiful and haunting and odd. The animation style took some warming up to, but after watching some extended gameplay, and especially after hearing the music and the sound design, it's got a really beautiful uh, uh, score that is... It reminds me of, like, classic John Williams space epic or, like, 80s, 70s, 80s space epic type of uh, scores, uh, but with, a you know, a modern sensibility to it as well. But it's just a refreshing sound, uh, at least in the trailer, and uh, I'm hoping that the that sound style, that music style, is going to carry over. I believe it will because in an interview with the, uh, the music director, he talked about really uh, liking to work with live musicians, uh, which the trailer music... Have, uh, feature, features very heavily. Uh, anyway, it looks like, you know, well, they've already said in the description it's got exploration and upgrading and stuff. Um, and it also, at the end of the trailer, seems to indicate a family theme of some kind. I mean, they say that you're this, you're a, a child with limited resources, so somehow you're moving around in this little robotic suit or something, I'm not sure. And then, of course, you get eventually like giant mech suits on top of that. But there's a kind of a, a quiet, um, delicate moment at the end of the trailer where this child character you're playing as walks through a, a living room and approaches what looks like a father figure or a parent figure of some kind sitting on a recliner and what that meeting is all about if that's the culmination of the adventure I don't know but there seems to be some kind of a family theme I, I think in this uh, game and so anytime you can kind of just hold up the family in video games I think that we could really use more of that in western culture because because uh, family, the idea of families being redefined and diluted and uh, wiped away in so many different respects, that uh, to see uh, the the idea of the uh, the, the the traditional family concept, uh, the biological and healthy functioning, you know, family concept uh, being held up in any way, is something that uh, I like seeing, and you know, hopefully this game will do that. Um, the next game that jumped out to me was System Shock. Now, this is a game that. PC gamers, classic PC gamers, have known about for years. It was influential in many ways uh, and a huge influence on games like Bioshock and Prey and Dishonored, you know, uh, the, the genre that is kind of referred to as uh, immersive sim. Really, as far as I understand, started with System Shock, a first-person kind of shooter-type exploratory uh, experience that was on PC only. 
And Night Dive Studios has had the rights to this game for a number of years. I think back in 2015 or 2016, they started their remake of the original System Shock to bring it to PC and consoles, which is really cool news for me because I playing Bioshock really opened up a whole world of gameplay types to me that uh, I had never, you know, dared try to enjoy before. And so the idea that I could play in a refreshed, modernized way this classic that inspired Bioshock and some other games that I really love is really, really appealing to me. It also has this really dark, kind of creepy sci-fi aesthetic where you're on a space station um, that uh, there's a strange AI that you're interacting with, maybe a sinister AI. It's kind of unclear. Uh, But anyway, it's a it's playing certainly when it comes to AI with themes that I enjoy. I like AI themes, but I really strongly prefer AI to be uh, not a person in fiction um, because I think that that upholds when you don't allow AI to become equally as much persons as people, then you uphold the uh, the difference. Uh, between humans and the idea that humans have a non-physical component that cannot be replicated artificially, you know. And so uh, whenever AIs are made into sinister beings in uh, fiction, that tends to work more with me uh, and I tend to like those stories a lot more. So, uh, yeah, you can, let's see, over at uh, systemshock.com, the developers write, we've gathered a team of industry veterans from games like Fallout New Vegas, Mass Effect, and Bioshock to create a faithful reboot of the classic game we all know and love. In System Shock, you'll take on the role of a resourceful hacker as you explore and survive the terrors of Citadel Station brought on by a rogue AI named Shodan. Uh, so, yeah, I, the aesthetic was, you know, not only having kind of a cool, dark sci-fi aesthetic, it also, if you look at the graphics a little more closely, has a slightly pixelated aesthetic. Now, normally I'd be like, gag pixels, you know, I, I'm just seeing way too many uh, indie games. But they're they're marrying 3D with pixelization, and it's a very subtle pixelization. You know, you you only notice it up close. In the same way that you would you would normally look at textures up close and say, oh, those are bad textures or whatever, if if they're looking blocky or something. But it's done intentionally in a way that doesn't make it look bad up close. It looks very stylized up close. So I would recommend checking out the trailer and kind of seeing that for yourself, and maybe you'll uh, understand what I'm trying to get at with my comments. But uh, System Shock, uh, I mean, they, one of the big updates the developers talked about in the interview about this game is uh, the controls getting a huge overhaul so that it can be more easily uh, appreciated by people who have been playing first-person shooters for the last 10-15 years where the control scheme on gamepad has really gotten locked in. I tried playing System Shock on a PC once uh, and it just did not work out for me. I didn't like the mouse and keyboard controls. I certainly couldn't get it to work the way I wanted on on a gamepad. So yeah, really, really looking forward to a lot of different elements in System Shock. Uh, the next game I'll just briefly mention that jumped out to me is Baldur's Gate 3. This one's coming to PC and console, TBA release date. It's kind of like when they're done with it, then it'll be released. And I'm all for that with developers. Uh, early access for this game is coming in August, maybe, they said in their early access trailer. Uh, depends on COVID-19 related factors, ultimately. There's going to be a big gameplay, uh, I believe it's a live demo, that's going to be this Thursday, June 18th. Uh, so we'll get some extended gameplay and uh, see where the team is at on the project right now. I had lost interest in this project for a while because I just 
had not been able to connect with the with divinity original sin um and uh, for reasons i won't go into but also for reasons i won't go into right now i am suddenly back into divinity original sin and for the first time really really enjoying it i think i've figured out how i personally uh can enjoy this game and how I make that work. And uh, I'll talk more about my obstacles to enjoyment and what I discovered to help me really enjoy it uh, this weekend, I think, on the Christian Geek Central podcast. So you can keep an eye out for that if you're curious. Anyway, the next game, Gestalt, Steam and Cinder. This is a a 2D uh, pixel art uh, action platformer type thing coming to PC and consoles in 2020. You know, those kinds of games are a dime a dozen, even if they're Metroidvanias, as this one seems to be. Those seem to be a dime a dozen. But the much sought after by me genre of what I call symphony likes that has those RPG uh, upgrading elements with experience systems and stuff so you can grind and build yourself up that way, uh, they seem to be present in the trailer for this game. It's a very brief moment that shows you able to um, boost, uh, upgrade your static uh, statistics. So your uh, like strength and dexterity and, and hit points and stuff like that. Uh, so if this is like a steampunk symphony-like, I am in. I am in all the way. Just kind of take my money and... <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't, I mean, like, the, the that that subcategory of Metroidvania is rare enough that pretty much whenever one comes out, uh, I'm, I'm going to buy it and, and probably have a real good chance of enjoying it. So that one's coming fairly soon to both PC and, and consoles. I put that in quotes because uh, I couldn't find in, much information at all on the developer's actual website for the game. And one site that I found reporting on it said that it was coming to PC and consoles 2020. Uh, and they listed off, you know, I think Xbox One, PlayStation 4, and uh, and uh, uh, Switch. But they didn't cite where they found that information. So I, I can't uh, confirm that. But I'm really, really hoping that that's accurate information. And that Gestalt, Steam, and Cinder will be in my collection sometime this year uh then i'm gonna mention once again during my celebration of un e3 this is probably gonna be the third time i've mentioned this game that's metal hellsinger this is coming to pc and consoles on 2021 uh in 2021 uh it's a rhythm shooter a first person rhythm shooter where you get extra points and presumably maybe upgrades or status performances uh, status status performance enhancements when you shoot and finish off your enemies to the beat of the screaming heavy heavy metal music that is playing throughout the level. Uh, I what I discovered with this uh, with some of the uh, additional footage that I've now seen because of the Guerrilla Collective uh, is that melee is also uh, an option in this. Uh, it does pre- predominantly look like a shooter still, uh, like a double fisting you know gun in each hand shooter if you want, or a shotgun. Or but there's definitely like times where the the player's using a like a melee weapon, a blade weapon of some kind, and a magic skull, which I'm not clear. Uh, Troy Baker does the voice for it, apparently, but I don't know what its purpose is exactly in the game. Looks like it was maybe doing some magic-y type stuff. And so, man, if you add that kind of variety to a game with this kind of concept, uh, it's even more appealing to me. And a little detail that I noticed in the sound design recently was like when you're using the shotgun, if you've got the music, boom, boom, doing this beat, okay... And then, and then you make a shot. Boom! Well, the cocking sound is designed specifically to sync up with the offbeats of the track. So you got you got the track. You go on the guy screaming, whatever he's screaming. Then you go boom, boom, 
boom, boom, you know, what, you know, I mean, it's like this really cool, like they fit that timing of the cocking of the shotgun into uh, the gameplay so that it adds as a player, not only with your blast itself, but with your cocking of the gun, you are adding to the rhythm of the track that you're experiencing as you play. Not only that, but the developers also revealed that the music tracks are layered. And what that means is you can just start out with a simple rock beat going on, maybe, you know, some bass action going on, maybe it's a guitar riff now and then. Uh, but as you perform better or as the action ramps up, new layers of the track get added. So the music becomes more intense depending on the type of the, the part of the level that you're on, how well you're doing as a player. And I mean, that kind of responsiveness to me uh, when I'm playing a game is so freaking cool. And so uh, I'm pretty... I am not at all confident I'm going to be good enough at this game to enjoy it. That's the, that's the big tragedy for me. Is it looks like there's so much cool stuff going on here. But if it's going to be like a hard game, um, man, I, I won't be able to enjoy it. But hopefully there'll be a, uh, an easy enough difficulty where it will be designed in such a way that even someone such as Peter Franson, who like just likes the idea that they're presenting, uh, will be able to play it through from beginning to end because I'm liking so much of what I'm seeing. Uh, let's see. A brief announcement from Larian Studios, who are working on the upcoming Baldur's, Great, Baldur's Gate 3 game, is that Divinity Original Sin 2 has received uh, a new gift bag DLC for everyone who owns Divinity Original Sin 2 Definitive Edition. It's called The Four Relics of Rivalon, and it's new content that will get your characters back into the game and exploring the land and finding new equipment, cool legendary equipment, fighting new bosses, including an undead dragon, and all of that available now, for free and available now. And that's the kind of stuff during a normal E3 season that I love to see. And I, I feel like there's been a couple instances of that, a couple other games that have been like available now, and I think with the uh, the added focus and spotlight on a lot of you know double A or indie uh, caliber games, we're seeing more of those kinds of things. Like, hey, this is available now, you know, uh, because that's it's more typical of of those types of games to not have as big of marketing campaigns, and so they can just say, boom, here it is, you know. And so that's been really cool to see. And in particular, as someone who's just now discovered that, oh my gosh, I can love Divinity: Original Sin. Uh, this was just a, a little. Thing for me to look forward to potentially if I continue enjoying that game and, and get the sequel. So, um, all right, uh, two more games. To, no, no, more than that, more than that. There was a lot going on <laughs> in these in the Guerrilla Collective days. Star Renegades uh, was the next game. Um, this one, let me actually jump over to the website really quick. StarRenegades.com reads from the makers of Halcyon 6 Starbase Commander comes Star Renegades a challenging tactical roguelite RPG set in an endless interplanetary rebellion against the Imperium. Lead a ragtag squad of rebels in their desperate fight against overwhelming odds and an evolving merciless adversary. So that's a lot of blah 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 text. You know, Let's jump in, down and look at the features here which include outwit your foes with interrupts, counters, and combos in our fast-paced tactical turn-based timeline battle battle system. So there's a lot going on in that description that makes me wonder, you know, exactly, okay, timeline battle system? What does that mean? Or, you know, tactical turn-based, I know what that is, but how is it fast-paced? Uh, the the trailer certainly looks, you know, like it, it's uh, pretty fast-paced. Um, 
Explore hauntingly beautiful landscapes, ruins, and procedurally generated dungeons in your mission to overthrow the Imperium. That could be cool. I mean, procedurally generated can definitely go uh, in a positive direction or in a negative stale direction. But looking at the visuals, I mean, the just the, the detail and variety in the sprite pixel animation was is almost kind of jaw-dropping to me i'm like that takes so much work they put so much time and effort to to make this pixel animation look so cool and i mean just detailed and beautiful and uh, varied and uh anyway continuing on here it says survive the relentless onslaught of a procedural adversary system that generates unique enemies and bosses that evolve as you play now i'm someone that when i'm playing a game i love to have a wide variety of enemies um in terms of visually what they look like in terms of what they do you know i like those monster movies where you're always discovering what is the weirdness of this creature over the course of the movie and so i like lots of monster and enemy variety and so i'm really curious about a game that you know isn't just like procedural in its layout of levels but it's procedural in its creation of enemies um <laughs> i mean that's like uh yeah that and it, on what on what uh, basis do they evolve? Are they evolving in response to the tactics you tend to use? I mean, that could certainly paint me in a corner. I can see that working against working against me. But uh, just that whole concept uh, really has me interested in this game. Uh, and I was already leaning forward because of the visual aesthetics. Uh, finally, it says unlock, trade, and upgrade your rebels with tons of weapons, loot, and gear. Hey, that's what I want. You know, that's what I want on an RPG. Lots of cool upgrading, lots of cool loot and gear, you know. Um, and that 2.5D pixel animation where it's, yes, it's 2D sprites, but they, they use perspective and some other cool 3D effects to really bring it alive in a neat way. It reminds me a little bit of that Square Enix game game Octopath Traveler a little bit uh, just yeah really really cool looking um so that one is uh I believe coming to PC and console um I think that's the only reason I re included it on my list here but I, I'm not seeing where I found that information immediately in front of me so hopefully that is correct uh that it is coming uh gosh I don't even have oh it's coming sp it coming spring 2020 so <laughs> I'm a little confused Okay, uh, Gematsu reports that it is coming out for Steam in 2020 and for PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and Switch at a later date. So uh, that is, that's exciting news to me. Um, and let's see here, the uh, last game uh, on my list for the Guerrilla Collective uh, streams is Haven. I've mentioned this game before in my celebration of Un-E3 2020. This is an RPG adventure. Uh, it's about a couple that escape a lost world to be together and to basically start a life together. You play as both characters all the time as one player, or there's drop-in, drop-out co-op. Uh, and that really got my attention especially because of the theme of this game, um, maybe, maybe making me think that uh, maybe my wife would want to sit down and play this game with me, you know, or try it out at least. Uh, you're basically on this strange alien planet that you've kind of crashed on, uh, from what I understand, and you're gathering um, resources from the environment to help you continue surviving in your ship that's crashed, or you're repairing your ship with resources that you find, um, and you're just in general trying to make a life for yourselves playing as this couple. Uh, there is some combat in it. Uh, it, it. That doesn't look like it's a major focus of the game, but you know, equal uh, to the exploration and the resource gathering and stuff like that. It looks like it's 
turn-based, but with a kind of in a real-time uh, type of uh, mode uh, where you are like having to hold down buttons in order to charge up and then activate whatever action it is that you're you know wanting to take. And there's synergy between the two characters. Like if you both choose to do a blast attack at the same time, then you can combine your blast power for a more powerful attack. And uh, in the extended demo that I saw, there's even like when you choose to do that, this spinning wheel that comes up that uh, if you both kind of like hit your hit buttons at the same time together, uh, you can get an extra powerful attack on top of, you know, the one that you would normally get just from uh, choosing to do that action uh, together at the same time. And you... Uh, there seems to be some kind of a synergy system. I don't know if they're calling it that, but that's the word that comes to mind. In the dialogue, uh, now and then in the dialogue or after pulling off a cool combat thing together, there'll be a little symbol that that shows up and and s seems to indicate that, like, okay, the, the bond of this couple is, is strengthened or it's uh, weakened in, in some way, you know? Uh, just their ability to work together, to live together. You know, this is, uh, the, conceptually... What stands out to me so strongly about this game is it's not about a couple that might might be interested in each other, you know. Um, it's about an established couple. It's not about a will they, won't they kind of thing. Will the relationship work out or won't it? No, the relationship is there. It's present. It's existed uh, apparently prior to the start of the game. And this is about starting a life together. And uh, as they describe it, about everyday love, you know. Um, it's it's like the beginning of the happily ever after, you know, and in uh, movies, at least back in the day when, you know, uh, more people cared about the concept of marriage than they do today, certainly, uh, you know, you would have at the end of the story, the couple gets married and they just go off into the sunset and, you know, that's their happily ever after. But this is about the first day after this. That's the impression I get. The first day after that happily ever after starts, you know, uh, it's about it's kind of analogous to, you know, a couple that just got married. And now they're, you know, getting a small apartment together, trying to figure out, okay, how do we divide up the chores? How do we just kind of live together like this, you know? And how do we uh, make a life for ourselves, build a life for ourselves? And uh, that's something that, you know, I would love to see in more games. I mean, I, I think we're a long way away from our culture really caring about marriage like it used to. Um, but I think that, you know, at least if you're going to make a story about a committed couple where the relationship working out or not is not really in question in the game. It's just about like, okay, how pleasant is this committed relationship going to be? How well are they going to work together? You know, that has its own drama and adventure. If you've been married for a while, you know that as well as I do, you know. So uh, I, I, I just love the concept of this. The one question I do have is about the visuals. I wonder if they might become stale after a while. So far in all the material, I've only seen one planet, one type of environment with a very limited color palette, I think, uh, and very limited variety in the landscape that you explore. And so, uh, but if this is a game that, you know, as I suspect, will only, you know, really grab me for maybe 30 minutes at a time, then that might all the more just make it conducive to me sitting down and saying to my wife, hey, Holly, you want to play like just 30 minutes of Haven tonight? And she'd be like, sure, and let's play 30 minutes, and then we're and then we're good. We got a little, you know, a nice little tasty bite, and we're done, you know. Uh, so anyway, definitely going to be keeping my eye on Haven. Um, and that one is, let's see here, I don't think there, is there a date for that? Let me check. 2020 is the release date for Steam, uh, Xbox One, Switch, uh, PS4, and other PC stores, they say.
I want to remind you guys to check out the other members of the Christian Geek Central Network, including the Strangers and Aliens podcast, the Theology Gaming podcast, the Untold podcast, POS, TOS, Helix Reviews, and the Retro Rewind podcast. For more information about the CGC Network, visit ChristianGeekCentral.com. This time reacting to the PC gaming show, which went completely digital this uh, this year. Normally they've had an audience. Uh, this time it was a, oh, I think almost completely prepackaged thing. I think maybe they might have done some stuff at the last minute, maybe live. I'm not sure, but anyway, I think it wor- it worked better. It played more to the strengths of the hosts. Uh, it's the same two hosts that have been doing it for years now, and uh, and I think it plays to their strengths as in terms of their style of delivery. And so this was probably, in terms of presentation, my favorite uh, PC gaming show. I don't know that it had necessarily a lot of games that really uh, got me excited or interested in, uh, in, in checking out compared to past years. Probably about the same. Uh, but I, I'm mainly going to highlight... Well, I'm just going to highlight the ones that jumped out to me. There was actually a lot of stuff that they covered... And I'm also going to highlight specifically stuff that is also going to come to console or is likely to come to console. And that's just one, two, three, four, five items really quick. The first is Mafia Definitive Edition. This one is coming to PC and consoles very soon, uh, August 28th. I have not played any of the Mafia games. and uh, But I mean, the, when the first Mafia game came out on PlayStation 2 back in, I think, the early 2000s, uh, I wasn't even touching open world games. And by the time I did discover that genre, uh, it would have been a little too old, I think, uh, for my taste. So to see that it's getting this really a complete remake, you know, while they are releasing two and three in kind of uh, uh, up in the case of two and just a complete package in the case of three, which was released much more recently on modern consoles, Mafia, the original Mafia, is being completely remade, I believe, using the engine of Mafia 3. And all the assets are being recreated from the ground up. It sounds like they're getting new uh, capture performances for all the cutscenes and actually rewriting uh, them as well, but still holding on to the essence of those the original story and the, the plot beats and stuff, all the missions that you would expect to be in there if you've played the original game are going to be in this version uh but it's just fleshed out in a lot of ways so it's still the same skeleton but uh i think improved with a modern game engine they're even improving you know physics in terms of driving and allowing for some uh some uh what do you call it some the thing where you drag you you it's not drag that's not the word racer racing people know what that is but when you uh slide a little bit there's a word for it dang it (laughs) anyway uh so i am interested in checking that out at least to see if it might be something that now that i've been into open world or open city in this case games for a number of years uh if it might be something that would uh that would appeal to me uh let's see here the next one that jumped out to me was a much smaller game a little indie game called rogue lords and this was kind of presented by the hosts as what if uh, a Tim Burton visual aesthetic was given to sl- the video game Slay the Spire. So it's a roguelite or roguelike style of game uh, where you're making one run through the game and presumably when you die, you lose everything that you gained. And you are playing as the devil, it sounds like, but it doesn't sound like a serious version of like the like the biblical devil, but more like the devil in the sense of the ultimate villain kind of thing. And you're controlling these classic villains from fiction, Dracula and werewolves and vampires and stuff like that. And uh, and they are kind of your minions 
uh, as you take on, I wasn't really clear who you're taking on, but anyway, I like the, the dark uh, supernatural aesthetic. I like vampires and werewolves and that kind of stuff, and so controlling them sounds really cool. Uh, I'm not sure what I think about the roguelike elements of the game, I I am, you know, kind of slowly uh, putting my feet in the waters of roguelike games, but I, I really prefer them to have some form of progression that does carry over even when you die or fail or whatever. I don't like a complete reset. And so there's a big question for me about what, if any, elements are consistent from one play through uh, one run to the next. That'll make all the difference in whether or not I decide to give rogue lords a try. Uh, they've got time to sort out those details, though it's not coming until 2021, uh, both PC and consoles for that one. The next game that jumped out to me was Weird West. Now, I've kind of got my eye on Desperados 3. I'm thinking of giving that one a try. Uh, I like the, the top-down uh, kind of a Western aesthetic. I'm, I think I'm ready for that genre and to play in that kind of world. But even more appealing to me is if you add weird, dark magic to it. And that's what Weird West does. Uh, and this one seems to be, well, it's actually late labeling itself as an action RPG, whereas Desperados 3 is looking like it's going to be more of a, a turn-based tactical type of experience. Um, but uh, this is an action RPG from one of the makers of um, oh, Arcane Studios. What's the Dishonored? Dishonored, you know. Uh, so the, these immersive sims where you are given these scenarios and there's multiple ways that you can uh, accomplish your objective given the elements that are present in the world and you know so you can manipulate the world you can manipulate ob objects in the world in creative ways to uh, to to meet your objective and uh, that has some appeal to me but I like the idea of being able to lean on the action RPG element and you know if my plans don't work out then just you know start going guns blazing and if you want to bring weird dark magic into that uh, then that's going to be even more appealing to me. One thing that really jumped out to me in the interview with the developer on this is this concept of a persistent world where you've got a group of heroes that you are controlling and if one of them dies well there's permadeath that 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 character dies but your play continues with the characters you still have remaining in your party uh, from what I understand and the character that perished, if you don't find a way to resurrect them, I think there might be, there is a little bit of, I was having trouble understanding, uh, the. there was a little bit of a language barrier. The developer, his first language is in English, and so I wasn't clear on what he was meaning to say in every instance, but it sounds like you can, you can potentially resurrect, you know, fallen uh, comrades, but if you don't, they might... Um, return in a state of undeath as some kind of a zombie or a vampire or something like that and be a part of the opposition that you will face as you continue your way through the game. And so it just sounds like there's a lot of interesting systems potentially in play for something that's billing itself as an action RPG. And again, that western meets weird dark magic kind of aesthetic uh, is totally my thing. Uh, this one, unfortunately, in my case, is only planned for PC at the moment, but it's being published by Devolver Digital, and they've got a pretty decent history of releasing a number of their games on consoles as well. And it just looks like, with the production values being put into this, even though it is an indie game, with the, cal with the uh, not the caliber, the uh, pedigree, <laughs> there you go, the pedigree of the lead developer, I'm thinking 
thinking they're going to want to put this on consoles. I could be wrong, but I'm betting that this one will come to consoles. Either way, it's slated to come to PC in 2021. I will have my eye on Weird West. Uh, the fourth game that jumped out to me is one I've already mentioned, because I saw it in another, in another uh, showcase earlier this week, and that's Metal Hellsinger. And, you know, we saw some more footage. It might have even been some of the same. I think a little bit of it was different, but I just found myself, even though it was the second time seeing this game in action, I found myself just bobbing my head to the music and just imagining myself, you know, pulling the trigger and hitting those buttons in time to the music while I'm, you know, taking out these horrible bad guys and stuff. I could just start, I could see myself, I could even feel myself playing this game. Now, maybe I'll be terrible at it, but uh, seeing it again just made me even more want to give Metal Hellsinger a try. And then the last game uh, that stood out to me was is called, okay, bear with me, Dungeon of Nahalbuck. Nahalbeck. I'm not sure. I've heard it pronounced once in a trailer one way and then another by Felicia Day that was slightly different. Nahelbeck? I don't know. But the subtitle is The Amulet of Chaos, and uh, Felicia Day just referred to it as The Amulet of Chaos from that point on (laughs) in the presentation. So you can probably just search The Amulet of Chaos game and uh, you'll get the right results. Anyway, this, uh, I first saw like a a conceptual trailer for this that came out from, I think, PAX East it was, and uh, it's a top-down, isometric, turn-based tactical fantasy RPG with a very, uh, I guess, whimsical sense of humor, but a, but a pseudo-dark aesthetic to the visuals, which I liked. It's not completely, you know, cartoony and bright and happy-looking. It has, a, you know, f- for a game that has a cartoony look, it has a slightly more, you know, serious cartoony look to it. And, uh, and so that's something that I appreciate. I will probably, just looking at the preview for this, once hearing the voice acting, I'll probably turn the voice acting off if I give this game a try. I prefer to speed through uh, dialogue anyway in most games. Um... And, uh, but, but they had, the, in the promo for the PC Gamer Show, they said, watch the extended demo on our YouTube channel. So I went and did that. There's like a 16, 17 minute demo, which did not do it any favors as far as I'm concerned. I think it could have benefited from having a developer kind of talking over the, uh, the demo to kind of explain the reasons for the choices that were being made. Because if you just watch that demo, uh, it's just a lot of really basic turn-based tactical stuff. You know, it's move a guy here and then do a basic attack. Move a guy here, here he gets cover, and then do a basic attack. Move a guy here, drink a potion. Person attacks, then they walk away from their, you know, from their opponent. You know, so I didn't get to see very many uh, cool-looking special attacks, spells and stuff like that. There was a little bit, but not much. And I really would have liked for a game that is... Coming out, I, I guess, pretty soon. I, I've seen kind of like uh, like summer 2020 is when it's supposed to be coming out. I'm not sure if that is still accurate or not. Uh, but if it is going to be coming out this summer, I, I would think they would want to show a lot more than they did. A lot more of the flashy stuff if they have more of that in this game. As it is, you know, the conceptual trailer that I saw months ago got me leaning forward and like, okay, I, I want to be sure that I give this game a try. Seeing this extended gameplay... I'm not sure. I'm not sure. So hopefully in the coming days, weeks, you know, uh, maybe months before it releases, uh, they'll roll out some more stuff, maybe give some dedicated videos detailing classes and what differentiates them or something. Uh, because I I think I'm kind of ready for a game like this, maybe. But I, I don't know if this game is going to be what I want. Anyway, um, 
Oh, yo, I forgot to mention, but with that Rogue Lords thing and the idea of like playing uh, as the devil or whatever, if, if that kind of makes you raise an eyebrow uh, as a Christian, then uh, I want to recommend a video that I created called Can Christians Be Evil in Games? You can search for it right here on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Christian Geek Central. And it's kind of an extensive treatment on the topic that I tried to give on, uh, you know, how maybe we we could or should uh, navigate uh, the, the, the uh, opportunities that we have to play play as evil characters in video games. So again, that's called Can Christians Be Evil in Games? If more on that topic would interest you. Games Radar's Future Games Show. Uh, a lot of games on display here. I'm just going to focus on the ones that really jumped out to me. Uh, and usually that's because they were specifically coming to console. The first one that got my attention is Quantum Error, which you can get more information about at quantum-error.com. Can't believe this one was not mentioned during Sony's event uh, the other day, unless I missed it. I just I don't remember this at all. But it's called Quantum Error, and the the main bullet point in a nutshell is on their website: Quantum Error is a cosmic horror FPS in development by Team Kill Media, coming to the PlayStation Five. Uh, now, what caught my eye? Well, my attention, excuse me, cosmic horror. I'm totally into that kind of a Lovecraftian type of horror. And it's called FPS, not survival horror games. Survival horror games, in my experience, the way I end up playing them anyway, is you run and then you die and then you repeat material. And I hate that. I, I, I want to, I, I, it's plenty intense for me just to be in the creepy environment and have things jumping out and stuff like that. I don't want it also to be hard and for me to have to repeat material a bunch. So the fact that this is an FPS means that maybe I could finally experience uh, a, a game in the genre I love, which is horror, but that is not about being really difficult, but it, it, that I would actually be able to make my way through the game. And it also looks really cool, too. I mean, the description on the website reads, When the Monad Quantum Research Facility, 30 miles off the shore of California, is attacked by an unknown entity, engulfing the complex in flames and putting it into a full containment lockdown, a distress call is sent for mutual aid to the Garboa Fire Department in San Francisco, California. Fire Chief Sturgis answers the call and sends you, Captain, Jake, Captain Jacob Thomas, your partner Shane Costa, and a crew by helicopter to the Monad facility. Your mission is simple. Save as many lives from the burning complex as possible and get out. However, what starts as a rescue mission quickly plummets into darkness when you arrive and find that things are not as they appear. So anyway... Uh, very little that you can tell about what the gameplay is going to be like, apart from it being, yes, a first-person shooter of some kind. Uh, but just the novelty of that alone really means that this game has my attention. Uh, the next game, very, very different from Quantum Error, is called We Are Dustborn. The description over at wearedustborn.com reads, It's 2030, three decades after the broadcast. You, you play PAX, ex-con, con artist, outcast. You've been hired to transport a mysterious package from Pacifica to Nova Scotia across the justice-controlled American Republic. But this is not a one-woman job. The fanatical Puritans are on your butt. The authoritarian justice is in your way. You're an outlawed 
anomal and you're four months pregnant. You need help. You need a crew. Recruit a band of misfits and outcasts with the power of words. Together you might survive this road trip unless you destroy yourselves first. At the end of the day, there is no hope except for us. Uh, so this is a game about the power of words, and that's really demonstrated in the in the trailer. And there's a little bit more insight going to the website. Uh, it says, uh, words can hurt. Use weaponized words fueled by disinformation in combat and conversations to fight enemies, manipulate strangers, and motivate friends. Now, that was very interesting to me. All those things you can do with words, it says, are fueled by disinformation, including motivating friends. Um, and so that's very, that's very, unless that they just didn't mean to construct the sentence that way to include that meaning, that says to me that you are giving disinformation in order to motivate your friends, really to manipulate your friends, they might as well say, along with the manipulating strangers. Uh, let me see. So there was other, some other bullet points here that grabbed me. The trailer, I think, said something about religion being a theme and you're being hunted down by these uh, Puritans uh, of some kind. Uh, let me see, there was something else. Oh yeah, here we go, the final words. Resistance is never futile. Um, this moment happens only once. This is the moment to act. The moment to rise up and stand for something. To protect the weak and speak truth to power. To rebel against the forces that threaten us all. We are Dustborn. What about you? So it just looks like um, they're going to be dealing with... The, the obviously the power of words, just the effect that words can have on people. Um, I think they're playing it out in this very kind of uh, overt way, but it's, uh, I think, also intended to be symbolic uh, and making some kind of commentary on the, the effect that words can have on people, the effect that disinformation, when it's spread around, can have on people. And I feel like in this internet age, we know all about the effect that words can have and the effect that disinformation can have. And here, this game, in this final statement on the web, Website has this uh, attitude of wanting to rise up against the powers that be and speak truth to them. Um, but what's interesting to me is is, the, is that uh, in all this talk about manipulating your friends and stuff and, and the inf the power of words and manipulating strangers and whatnot. Um, how are they really going to value truth in, in the story of this game? And what truth claims are they really going to be putting out there? Uh, either way, I think that the concept of the game is really interesting to me. If it's a low enough price point, you know, if it's not like a full full price game, um, then there's a chance I'll give this one a try because the premise and the concept of the gameplay really has my interest. Again, that's called We Are Dustborn. More information at wearedustborn.com. Uh, the third out of four games that jumped out to me was called Anno Mutationem or Anno Mutationem. I'm not sure what this thing is, but aesthetically, it really is uh, eye-catching because it, it uses a pixel art style, but it is a three-dimensional game. It has a three-dimensional world, so it blends pixel art and 3D uh, to create its environment. It's, it's a cyberpunk game coming to a PlayStation 4, uh, and they tweeted out on their official Twitter account for the game, along with some screenshots, did you know Anno has a bunch of cool RPG elements, such as enhancing your character and gear, as well as crafting slash buying cool stuff? Now, the trailer doesn't show any indication of that, so I'm glad that they put this out on their Twitter account. Uh, the trailer looks really cool, you know, 2D side-scrolling with 3D effects creating depth, you know, for the environment. Um, 
And uh, it's just, so to see screenshots of like inventory stuff and upgrading your character, I'm like, oh, cool. Is this going to be something of a Symphony of the Night inspired experience? And that may be the case because in the official description that the developers gave for this game, which admittedly does have some language issues uh, because they're, they're, uh, it's being developed in China. And so uh, if you read through the description, it's clear that it was not written um, by you know native English speakers. There's some issues there. So it's hard to kind of nail down details on this. But it does say, the developers of Anno Mutationum hope to provide a refreshing combat experience and rich ex- exploration in the world of Anno Mutationum. So if they're em- emphasizing combat um, and, and, uh, and RPG elements for upgrading your character and gear and stuff and aiming to provide a rich exploration experience, this looks like something that me and other fans of the Symphony of the Night style game might really enjoy. So I will look forward to getting more of that. What did it say? I think it said 2020 is when this thing is coming out. Let me double check. All right, I can't find the information I want to find right now. I think I saw somewhere 2020, but I could be wrong. Anyway, I will be keeping an eye out for Anno Mutationum. And then the last game is one that I might have mentioned before. Wasteland 3, coming out August 28th to uh, PlayStation 4 and I think to Xbox One as well. I believe it's already on PC. And uh, I ultimately gave up on Wasteland 2 because I was just missing too many times and my guns were jamming too many times. And... uh, but it, it, from every time I hear something more about this game, I'm thinking, well, it sounds like they're fixing some of the things that I, I, I had trouble with. I haven't specifically heard about them fixing the uh, miss percentage issue that I had and the gun jamming issue that I had with Wasteland, uh, Wasteland 2. Uh, yeah, Wasteland 2. But they're talking about emphasizing choice and that being a major component. And um, and it just sounds like this is a fresh experience and, up, and intended by the developers an upgraded experience that's going to improve on all the elements of the first game. They have to know that that was frustrating. And I, I mean, I call it the first game, but I mean, it's the original Wasteland came out in, I want to say, like the 80s or something. So, I mean, this is like, oh, crap. This is the first game in this new kind of refreshed series my gosh, I'm too pressed for time. I can't edit that out. So anyway, every time I see more about this game, every time I hear uh, the developers talk about this game, it moves me from the place of saying, yeah, I'm not going to, I have no interest in Wasteland 3, to thinking, oh man, I might really need to give this one a try uh, before I completely shut the door on it. So anyway, uh, here's hoping that Wasteland 3 will be much more the experience for me compared to uh, Wasteland 2. Data collection complete. Activating Usenet 1.0. This week at SpiritBlade.com, this is the last weekend to take advantage of our big audio drama sale. It's running through the end of June 21st, uh, so this is your last chance uh, to take advantage of that spiritblade.com there's trailers and stuff there and of course the uh, legacy edition of spiritblade is uh, free and so you can download that for free anytime and uh, listen to it see if it's your thing but you want to do that quickly because uh, the discounted prices on the the second and third parts of that trilogy are only going to last until the end of June 21st. Uh, let's see. Over at YouTube.com slash Christian Geek Central, I believe this was a record-breaking week for me in terms of videos produced in a single week. Oh, my gosh. Um, 
So let me rattle these off for you. A lot of this is part of the show today, but about half of it is not. Uh, the PC Gaming Show, my reactions to the PC Gaming Show, my reactions to the Future Games Show, my reactions to the Gorilla Collective, which actually, I think I said earlier that was three videos spaced out over f- three days. It's actually four videos spaced over a week because they delayed their plans and instead put together a... Um, uh, a, a black creators showcase, uh, which there was one game there that really stood out to me. That's part of my thoughts that I'll share on the Gorilla Collective reaction. So, <clears throat> for multiple reasons, I'm glad they decided to do that. Uh, and let's see, my reactions to the Upload VR showcase, uh, my spoiler car video for Justice League Dark Apocalypse War, and there was so much going on in that one. I mean. Tons of characters dying and getting horribly maimed and lots of shocking stuff uh, that happened. <clears throat> then I started putting up a series of demos because this is the first time that the demos that normally are only available to uh, attendees of E3 that actually go physically to the conference. Well, there is no physical conference this year, and I think a lot of uh, game creators are still wanting to get their demos out there. And they're kind of taking the risk this year of making a lot of those demos available to the average consumer, which I think is great. I think we have reached the point now where the average consumer is much more informed. And so, you know, because the reason they wouldn't do that in previous years is they they basically couldn't trust uh consumers to understand what a demo is, what an alpha build is, and the fact, or at least the fact that, okay, this isn't in an unfinished state. It's going to be kind of janky. It's going to be glitchy and broken. And they know press are going to understand that. And so press typically aren't going to mention much uh, of the kind of the glitches and stuff that are going on in their written up previews of the event, because, you know, why bother? These these things are usually going to be fixed or the most of them are going to be fixed by the time the final product goes out. But uh, I think now they're understanding that with this digital age we live in, consumers are or at least certainly can be much more informed about the process of making video games and what uh, an alpha build or a beta build, you know, or, or what a demo, you know, a vertical slice is, those kinds of things. And so so they're essentially trusting us with this stuff. And since I have uh, more time, I'm betting, in my schedule than you do to uh, check out these demos, I'm basically p- playing and streaming and recording all the demos I can for games that caught my attention in some of these digital events that you know I am commenting on in this episode of the podcast. So, so far, that has included uh, the demos for Relicta, Haven, Spiritfarer and Disjunction. And after I record the podcast today, basically the rest of my workday is going to be given to recording demos. Uh, there's a limited time on these demos. If you want to take part in in uh, checking out these demos yourself, it's they're all at part of the Steam Summer Game Festival. So if you go to steampower.com, uh, you'll see that uh, they've got the big Steam Festival going on. It's only going on until this Tuesday morning, 10 a.m. Pacific time. And then a lot of these demos are going to be no longer available. And so these uh, are limited time uh, demos that you can take advantage of. I am primarily only playing demos for games that are also going to be coming to console. Um, you know, my I'm just not a PC gamer. But I'm specifically p- focusing my attention, for the most part, on games that 
are A, coming to console, and B, the demo has full controller support. So that in playing this demo, I can feel like I'm getting an idea of what the console experience will be like, you know. So, and it's, it's, been, uh, it's been neat to kind of check these things out, and so I'm looking forward to doing more of that this weekend. Uh, so keep an eye out for more. And then lastly, uh, my EA Play uh, reaction video is up. And probably by the end of today, I mean, I'm going to spend, because of that deadline um, of Tuesday morning that a lot of these demos are going to disappear, today I'm just going to focus on a lot of recording uh, instead of, you know, editing them after the fact and trying to get them up and out to you guys. So I'm going to, just just so I can stay safely ahead of that deadline, I'm going to just focus on recording demos today. And I will try to get one of them up before the end of the day, just so there can be some some Friday content on YouTube this week. Uh, and then the rest of them may end up going up next week. I don't know that I'll spend any time doing any of that this weekend. I'm kind of ready for a break. Um <clears throat> But anyway, while you're at our YouTube channel, if you want to like, share, subscribe, and then, of course, click that notification bell so you get notified when new videos come out. And just anything else that you want to do to help spread this content around. I don't know. There's always some new gimmick. There's always some new trick and trend that you have to do and figure out and know in order to get your content out there. But the one constant that kind of rises above all of those little gimmicks and tricks to get your content seen is people like you sharing that content with people that they know. That is like, word of mouth is the ultimate way that Christian Geek Central and Spirit Blade Productions are going to be able to grow in terms of what uh, is capable in the output uh, and uh, what what the future might hold. That's uh, So much of that uh, really is owed to people like you that uh, share this content with others. So I hope you'll consider doing that. All right. Looking now at our Christian Geekly News highlights from our Twitter feed, at Christian underscore geek. (laughs) I changed my wording a little bit, so I had to on the fly change my sentence structure that I'm used to using there. Anyway, I didn't think I was going to have anything to share with you guys this week because I didn't last week just because I was so busy with une3 stuff that I didn't have time to check my Twitter account. And... I I think I did once this week, and I figured out a way that I can kind of get through it more quickly and really zero in on the the news items that I might want to retweet. And so, but I only managed to pull that off one day. Even so, found two items that I think might be uh, worth mentioning to you. The first is redwallfandom.com posted an article stating Soma Games announces 2020 release plan. So Soma Games, if you're not familiar, they uh, are the producers of the Redwall series of video games. And although they are producing games for the mainstream, they're very upfront on their about page that they are coming from a Christian perspective in their game creation, you know. Uh, And so uh, if you are interested in kind of seeing what they have planned for 2020, um, then go to our our Twitter page and check out that tweet. There's links to that that article. Um, Realm Makers, the uh, conference that is basically from uh it's it's for all kinds of writers but it's being run from a christian perspective uh with a, a christian heart behind it anyway they posted out teens we still have a program for you at hashtag realm makers 2020 we are excited to welcome back best-selling author brian davis so if you have an aspiring teen writer or you are an aspiring teen writer and you have a a way to participate. I mean, this is, they're going digital this time. So, uh, you know, you should be able to, you know, transportation, which might normally kind of hamper a teen getting to a conference like this is uh, not going to be an issue this time around. So 
Uh, they say, if you haven't reserved your spot in our unique virtual conference experience, register today. And again, for links to those stories and to stay up to date on the notable news and events from the wider world of Christian geekery, follow Christian Geek Central on Twitter at Christian underscore geek. Uh, let's see, over at patreon.com slash Productions this week, uh, I have been posting, well, I've been posting embedded, uh, what do you call it, the, um, uh, I post them as videos because that's what the backend tool on Patreon calls it. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. I'm streaming my playthroughs of these demos live for patrons. All patrons, $1 and up. Uh, can see me uh, experimenting and playing around. It's the uncut, unedited version of that. And so sometimes if there's a parenting thing I have to get up and do, I go and do that, you know. But uh, whenever I can, I'm trying to keep the chat visible. So if you want to pop in uh, and uh, chat with me and say, hey, Peter, you know, what do you think of this game or whatever? Uh, I would love to interact with you as I'm able. There are a few of these games that I'm not able to put in windowed mode on my PC, which means that I will not be able to see chat. But I have been putting a notification in the notes uh, when that is the case, when I cannot, or when I think it might be kind of difficult for me to look at chat, you know. But otherwise... Um, or even if, you know, I say, I'm not sure if I'm able to look at chat, give it a shot because I would love to uh, interact with you a little bit while I'm doing these uh, these demo playthroughs uh, if you would be interested in that. So um, <clears throat> that uh, you can keep an eye out there uh, for any notifications that I'm going live throughout this weekend. There's a possibility, certainly, well, I was going to say certainly today, but by the time you hear this today, we'll basically have been done unless you like get this the moment it uploads which i don't think that really is a thing um so yeah keep an eye out this weekend and uh, we'll see what happens <laughs> um what else what else oh yeah this week also i there's a demo that went up that i'm actually not going to publish on the christian geek center channel all of these that i've been live streaming for the patrons i've then later been editing and putting and putting up you know sometimes just hours later on the christian geek central youtube channel as a archived video but there's one game what's it called solasta crown of the magister or something like that it's a uh, it's a D&D rules-based RPG video game. They licensed the rules from Wizards of the Coast, but it's not the D&D world. Um, but it looks like something that I'll really enjoy. I The reason I'm not posting a video is because I realized shortly into getting into like combat in this game that I was like, ugh, th- th- there's no gamepad controls for this, and the PC controls that they're having me do, I'm just not used to. And so I was just realizing I am not going to be able to provide any kind of a worthwhile perspective on the gameplay here because I'm just not used to this kind of control scheme, you know. So uh, I share a few of my thoughts and I do play a little bit of the demo so you can see some character interactions. You can see one, you know, complete uh, battle of combat, I think. And it's got some nice spell animations that I liked. Um, So you can get a little taste of it and watch me playing it in particular. But, you know, there's tons of videos out there as well that that you can see of this game. Not tons, but there's some. And, Pater, why are you, like, telling people to go watch other videos? You're trying to freaking sell them on Patreon right now. Good grief. (laughs) Anyway, that's just a little... uh, uh, uncut uh, uh, bit of material that uh, is going to be just for patrons this week. Um, and then also I put up the June patron Discord hangout. Of course, we did that live first for uh, patrons of the $5 tier and higher who were invited to get on Discord and have an audio chat with me, which we had a great turnout. We had uh, maybe more uh, of you 
talking like actually in the conversation simultaneously than we've ever had before. Uh, so that was that was really, really cool. Really enjoyed that. Uh, the archived version did go up for the uh, $1 and higher tier uh, soon after that, as it does every month. Although I have to apologize that there was some kind of a sound issue that prevented uh, the patrons that were in the Discord. It would prevented their audio from being recorded. And I... I think I know what might have caused that, and so hopefully I can prevent that next time. That's not something I don't think that's ever happened before. And so I'm really frustrated that it happened this time. Um, But for those of you that were there live, that was a great time. I had a great time. So uh, I hope you guys will come back for that next month as well. For as little as $1 a month, just as a reminder, you can help make sure all of my efforts with Christian Geek Central and Spirit Blade Productions keep going and growing on into the future. And you can also get yourself a ton of exclusive archived and ongoing content that's just for patrons. And at 30 patrons, we're just five away right now, we're having a pizza with an asterisk party on Discord. Uh, So I'm looking forward to that. And I want to say again, thank you to all of you patrons that uh, have put down money um, to support what I'm doing. That means a ton to me. Um, Even just a dollar a month, that that, that really speaks volumes to me and uh, very tangibly makes possible what I'm doing. So thank you so much for that. And now it's time for the weekly waistline right after I take a little drink of water here. I'm drying out again. I tried to give you the gulping experience. I don't know how much you heard there. Excuse me, a little burp there. 1 Corinthians 9, 25-27 in the ESV says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. As geeks were known for our creativity and intelligence, but not especially known for our self-control when it comes to the pleasures of life. So 1 Corinthians 9, 25-27 has been the mission verse for me, at least that's been the intent as I aim to be more responsible with my body and just grow in my ability to say no to my desires. My goal has been to lose six inches off my starting waistline of 42 inches, and since I need some help as I develop this discipline, there is a prize pool of fun money waiting for me at the end. For more details about the whole thing, you can listen to episode 565. For now, my weekly waistline is yet again 38.5. This has got to be like eight weeks now with no change, at least six. Um... But this week, uh, and it, there's there's always a reason. There's always a reason that I have for why it hasn't changed. Uh, at some point, I just need to stop uh, allowing reasons. Um, but anyway, I was eating un-E3 treats. Every year as I've gotten to the habit for years now of uh, covering the big news and events of E3, there's always been this one concentrated week of tons of stuff, and I'm really super busy, and so I try to have easy meals that I enjoy prepared in advance and treats and stuff like that that I allow myself for just that week, you know, um, while I'm in my office, usually for longer work days and stuff. And and so uh, I made some treats for myself this year. They're on the healthier side of the spectrum, so they have that going for them. But this un-E3 stuff is longer than the usual E3. It's been going for at least two weeks now, and this coming week is going to be week three. And so... <laughs> Uh, I need to just cut myself off and just say, okay, Peter, this is the new normal. You can't be having all your treats for three weeks in a row. So I'm not surprised that there's no change. I'm actually grateful that I didn't measurably gain 
Um, my uni three treats are all gone now. They, I finished them up on Wednesday of this week after measuring on Wednesday morning. And so since then, I've been um, leaning into freebie foods more. Those foods that, uh, those food types, I'm trying like, to get into the specifics of my diet. Because uh, I really want to talk, as I've mentioned in the last couple of weeks, more about the experience, the mental and emotional and spiritual experience of, of, of doing this. Um, and not get you, your mind sidetracked into trying to, you know, help me troubleshoot the technical things of my diet. Uh, but anyway, I've been leaning into freebie foods. Those, those foods on any diet that basically you can eat as much as you want of for free. And there's no problem there. And they, so they can help you with, uh, your hunger. And, uh, but I'm still having small portions of the other kinds of foods that you still need for nutrition. And then frankly, I, you know, really want for the pleasure of eating them. But I, I'm trying, um, I did this a while back and saw good results with it. I'm trying to load up with, um, with those kind of freebie foods, uh, on my meals and then kind of top off the meal with the other elements, you know? Uh, and so that way I'm not, I'm seeing food as, I'm trying to see food as fuel more. That was given a negative connotation in the animated movie Ratatouille. I don't know if any of you guys have seen that. It's not a geek movie, you know. Um, but uh, there's like a, one of the, this, there's this rat that doesn't merely want to eat dumpster food. He wants this delicious food, you know. And so like his father or some kind of father type figure in his life grumpily says, Feud, fool, a uh, feud is feud? Good grief, Franson. Food is fuel, he says. You just got to eat it to survive, to live. That's what it's for, and that's it, you know. And so, yes, you know, of course we want delicious food, but actually that grump, you know, so often the the grumpy negative people in Hollywood are the ones that actually have a little some truth, a little bit of truth to their message. And all the protagonists that are like, I just want to do what feels good are leading us into ruin. <laughs> Um, but I, I am trying to get back into a mentality more of the practicality of food and seeing food as primarily fuel. Um, in the new creation, it will be, well, uh, it, maybe not even fuel, I don't know, but uh, it, it uh, will certainly be for enjoyment. But uh, right now, uh, primarily, I think it, uh, it, I need to see it as fuel and not count on it, not uh, feel entitled to my food giving me pleasure, you know. Uh, so seeing it primarily as fuel, as eliminating hunger, you know, as opposed to giving me pleasure, its primary role is to eliminate hunger so I can get on with my day, you know. Um, and so uh, I'm trying to kind of reinvigorate that mindset, which I had months ago, and I kind of lost at some point. Um, and it was, and I think as I was discovering recipes, it's like, oh, this works with my diet, and I enjoy it. And so I was, I was finding myself kind of going back toward these things, you know, expecting enjoyment from every, you know, uh, edible item that I put in me, you know. <laughs> so I'm now trying to recorrect that and uh, have more of a practical view of food instead of an unhealthy one. Um, and I've got four weeks uh, to get to 37 inches. My goal, my short-term goal, because we have a vacation coming up in four weeks, um, and I would like to you know, I'm not going to, like I did over Christmas, just totally go nuts and just say, I'm doing everything I can because I can, you know. Um, I'm going to be thinking, I think, for the rest of my life now, even on vacation, 
on vacations. I'm just going to be cognizant of what I'm putting into me. Um, but I do want to be able to relax and enjoy special meals and foods and stuff, you know, um, to some degree. And so uh, in order to do that and feel good about doing that, uh, my short-term goal is to reach 37 inches, which is one inch away from my final goal of 36 inches. Um, so my goal over the next four weeks is to get from this 38.5 to 37. And so now is the time we're like, okay, I really see this time element. I really got to be serious now. In some of my best weeks of this journey, I have lost uh, a half inch. Um, that's, but other weeks I've lost a quarter inch, and that's still been a great week. And so the way I am doing my math right now, I need to lose more than a quarter inch a week, but not as much as a half inch a week in order to succeed, to get myself from 38.5 to 37 over the next four weeks. And as part of that journey and really my long-term journey, I'm considering instituting a like one strict day per week, you know, um, one day a week where I, you know, maybe only eat those foods that are absolutely guilt-free. There is absolutely nothing wrong with them, you know, um, and in appropriate portions and stuff, you know, uh, just one day where, uh, I just, I just don't, you know, eat for pleasure at all, you know, um, and I think that's good for the um, the spiritual component of this as well. You know, I think days like that could function as a sort of like fasting with training wheels day <laughs> because it's not real fasting, you know, but it is a very controlled thing and uh, something that I would want to enter into as a spiritual discipline. You know, this is really <clears throat> a heart contentment issue. You know, um, and I've been forgetting to pursue that heart change of just uh, learning to be content with food as mere fuel, with food as mere sustenance, you know. Um, and so I think instituting a one day a week fasting with training wheels day um, where I'm really engaging with the spiritual discipline uh, of contentment um, in all of my choices of everything that I eat and drink, you know, I think that that could be really good. I, I can't imagine doing that every day for the rest of my life, but I can see a sustainable pattern where maybe as many as two days a week uh, have that, I'm in that kind of mode for the rest of my life. And so I think I might want to start doing a one day a week thing. Uh, I just gotta, I just gotta buckle down and figure out which day that's going to be. <laughs> Anyway, I'm reminding myself again, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 25 through 27 in the ESV, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Gosh, I think about that last sentence there, you know, and as week to week, I am presuming to gather uh, worthwhile thoughts, uh, worthwhile observations from Scripture, and presuming to share those with you guys in hopes of being useful to you. Um, but uh, I do not want to disqualify myself for the rewards that God wants to give me from greater obedience to Him. I do not want to be disqualified for those. And so that's that in particular is the part of that passage that's sticking out to me. Anyway, stay tuned for another update on my Weekly Waistline next time. 
this time I'm reacting to the upload upload excuse me VR showcase, uh, which is all about VR games. VR really isn't um, or hasn't been on my radar much in the past. This might be the first year that uh, I'm st I'm starting to think that. I could eventually get a VR headset of some kind. I really want to see the technology advance to the point where it's not a hassle to use and the cost drops significantly and also the games that are being made for it are worth the investment and will provide a lot of time and value for the money involved. Uh, the first game that jumped out to me actually wasn't part of the showcase proper. It was part of the uh, pre-show where they were showing games that had already come out or come out recently and one that just came out June 4th is called The Wizard's Dark Times and uh, this one I've just looked into it a little bit it's basically a wizard simulator where through uh, gestures you're able to cast spells and unlock more spells as the game progresses and uh, this the the the, the commercial for this, which, you know, obviously is going to be doctored and not necessarily representing the uh, the, the in-game experience. But it was the first time I think I saw something that I, that I was like, yeah, something like that is what I might be interested in doing someday. That looks like it could appeal to me. I like the idea that it's in a fantasy environment and that it also involves a lot of um, activity in, uh, you know, from physically. Uh, I think that that could be a really cool thing for geeks to see and experience more of in the future, you know, uh, so that you know, something cool and interactive that will get our bodies moving, you know, get our blood flowing and our, our heart pumping and, you know, get us breathing a little bit, you know, uh, you know, a little bit of a workout is what I'm getting at. Uh, but while enjoying a cool fantasy simulated experience. And so I think that the wizard's dark times is probably a step in the direction that I would like to go in, uh, if I were to play VR and that I think would be good just in general for, to have those kinds of experiences for, for all kinds of geeks. Um, Let's see here. Operencia the Stolen Sun. This is a game that I just got a few months ago on PlayStation 4 and put up a trial and error review for it. Or not a trial and error, but some kind of like first impressions review. Anyway, um, yeah, I, I like this game, but it's coming to VR now. Uh, it says coming soon, so no specific uh, date, to PSVR, Steam VR, and Oculus. And that, again, is the kind of... Uh, thing that I would be interested in, in playing in VR, a full-length RPG experience. Now, how is that going to translate from a, a grid-based, turn-based dungeon crawler into a VR experience? I don't know. From the promo that they showed, it wasn't clear to me how action selection would work, which would be kind of like the big thing. You know, in the, the Wizard's Dark Times promo, you are using gestures to cast spells. But, you know, what is that going to look like in Operencia, the Stolen Sun, which is a turn-based thing, are you going to be using your VR hand to push buttons and that's, you know, the big experience? Or are they going to try and do some kind of a simulated experience, even though you're controlling not just a single character through VR, but a, a party of characters? So I, I don't know what's gonna, uh, what that experience is going to be like, but uh, I'd like to see more games like that brought to the VR experience that would certainly come closer to enticing me. Area Man Lives. This is a game I've known about for a while. It's um, being produced uh, in part by the creators of That Dragon Cancer, and I think also I want to say Cyan 
Publishing is the other company. It's two developers that, while they produce games for the mainstream market, uh, are run by people who themselves are Christians and are even, in subtle ways, creating their content from a Christian perspective. And uh, this is a game that I've mentioned a few times on the Christian Geek Radar on the Christian Geek Central YouTube channel and on the Christian Geek Central podcast. I've kind of been tracking with some news on this a bit uh, because it does interest me. I personally hope it comes to regular consoles, but uh, for now it's cool to see it getting ready to launch on uh, VR platforms in 2021. It's coming to Steam, Oculus, and Vive. The description of this one on their website, areamanlives.com, reads, Area Man Lives is a quirky VR mystery mixing comics and radio drama into a video game. Use your own voice to talk to characters and your trusty monkey gloves to interact with the world. Uh, excuse me, using your own blah blah blah, uh, you begin to piece together what's happening in this decidedly odd town on the Oregon coast. If you could live inside a classic radio drama, talk to its invisible characters, and interact with the environments the story painted in your mind, you might find yourself in a world like Area Man Lives. Who is the man leaving voicemails? What is he looking for? What exactly is this atmospheric phenomenon everyone is talking about? Explore the radio studio and meet new characters as you unravel the mysteries of Area Man Lives. So you are the disc jockey on a local radio station and a man calls in uh, saying some unusual things and you are basically seeing the situation unfold, doing what you can to help from your particular position, uh, and just kind of having this lived experience. From from what I understand, you even can, on the fly, record radio jingles or promos and stuff that then get played uh, later on in the broadcast. And so it's uh, it really sounds like a, an unusual game, but something that I would be very interested in uh, in experiencing. Um, let's see. And the last game that jumped out from this presentation for me is called Lo-Fi. This is a cyberpunk game. Think Blade Runner and think Blade Runner a lot because that very much looks like it's a primary inspiration. Um, It's coming to Oculus, Valve, Vive, Windows Mixed Reality, and PS5. And the description for this one over on their uh, website at irisvirtualreality.com slash un-portfolio slash load-fi reads, Lo-Fi is the spiritual successor to the critically acclaimed Technolust, available now on Oculus Home, a next-generation virtual reality simulation in which you as the player patrol the streets and the skies above them, solving mysteries, fighting crime, or giving in to corruption. The choice is yours. Slated for commercial release sometime in 2020. The story description reads, as the player, you are a lo-fi, the street name given to those who cannot merge with The Platform, a ubiquitous virtual reality simulation where most of the population now lives their lives. You are a police officer and have been transferred to a particularly crime-ridden section of City Block 303. The only inhabitants of note in your jurisdiction are other lo-fi, and the human intelligence or lower artificial life forms who have remained among the citizens after the AI singularity. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think that that description really jumps out to me. You know, cyberpunk is meant to be a kind of a cautionary tale about what the future could become. And this idea of everyone existing in a virtual virtual reality platform, except for, you know, the, the have nots that, uh, you know, aren't able to live their lives there, uh, could be where we're headed. And But I think also the value in cautionary tale, you know, science fiction is what it says about where we are just a little bit right now. And uh, uh, I have 
watched, I think, for the last 10, 15 years as seemingly our social skills either atrophy or are simply revealed uh, to be as broken as they are with uh, the internet and social media becoming what it has become. And so I think a game like this is very, uh, very relevant, uh, in at least in terms of its concept. I don't know what the execution will be like, but based on the trailer, you can consider me very, very uh, interested in, uh, in finding out more as it comes out. Now I'm reacting to the EA Play event for uh, this year. Um, not much at, at all that really connects with me uh, in this presentation. In fact, no games actually, not a single game actually that I plan on buying and playing myself, but still really some noteworthy things. You know, EA, in the way that they uh, market their material each year, I feel like uh, is potentially a window into the hearts of many gamers. You know, um, marketing is based on uh, information that is probably good information that leads marketers to think that consumers will respond to this. You know, uh, people that are in marketing really have to be good at getting a, a lay of the land, understanding what's going to connect with people, and then making their marketing campaigns, their marketing speech, uh, leverage that so that they can sell their products. And and I think that EA. Um, each year kind of reminds me of some realities, some of them sad, about where we're at today, you know. Uh, the Sims is a popular franchise of, their, franchise of theirs, has been for years, and they had people that some of them may or may not have been actors, kind of hard to tell, you know, um, but uh, let's just give them the benefit of the doubt and say that, you know, they're all like uh, uh, actual players of this game, you know. Uh, and they were kind of giving these testimonials that were, you know, sliced up and intercut with each other. Uh, but they were talking about how much The Sims as a game has meant to them. And uh, they talked about feeling hope through playing The Sims, experiencing acceptance through playing The Sims. There were some taglines that went up saying life without fear, life without hate, life without judgment. Um, all of this can be experienced within The Sims. One person in his testimonial said of The Sims that in it you can create your life, you know. And so all these people, for one reason or another, are not feeling acceptance in their day-to-day -day lives. They're maybe dealing with fear and uncertainty or hate or judgment, you know. And so uh, they are finding that in this game. And I, I think that, you know, for a while now, we've been moving more and more in the direction of people finding or trying to find, uh, I should say, fulfillment in an entertainment experience. And uh, we are certainly, as Christian geeks, susceptible to that as well. And while some beautiful things can come about from entertainment, and while there is a core of beauty and good uh, that originates with God that can be found in all kinds of uh, entertainment, um, finding fulfillment and acceptance and uh, a lack of judgment in games, um, we shouldn't, I mean, people shouldn't have to be going there for that. Uh, to even try to get that. It's not, it's not lasting. It's an illusion. It's, uh, it's not a true 
uh, it's not true acceptance. It's based on, you know, a, uh, a facade that they're putting up, a, an, a digital avatar that is not truly them, you know. And so there was kind of a sadness uh, in my mind um, as I was watching this presentation, thinking about, you know, these people. And so I think in there, we can take from that a call from us as believers uh, to commit ourselves to learning how to love people well, to uh, to give people the truth in love. You know, I think uh, we can lean one way or the other and feel like they are opposing each other. Well, we can be truthful or we can be loving, but we can't be both at the same time. But scripture calls us uh, to present the truth with love, uh, both of those working together at the same time. And when that's done, um, then the, the truth will be uh, extremely powerful, as powerful as it can be, and people will feel love uh, in ways they never could if truth isn't uh, involved in that, and it's just nice-sounding ideas. And so, um, I, yeah, I, I think that when we watch a presentation like that, when we see those kinds of things being expressed, uh, that's that should be a call-up for us, you know, to dedicate ourselves to learning how to better love people while still holding to the truth and uh, hold to the truth while still loving people, you know. Um, the the game that probably is going to jump out to most gamers watching this is Star Wars Squadrons. That's coming out October 2nd, and it's going to have cross-play uh, and coming out on PC and consoles. Lots of cross-play was a big feature in EA's presentation, and so I think we're heading into a world where, yeah, you know, cross-play is going to be ubiquitous, and it's just going to be expected more and more on games that come out, um, instead of being trapped on a console's, you know, isolated ecosystem. Uh, it's got a single-player campaign, but who knows if that's just like, you know, <laughs> the lip-service version of a campaign, or how really rich and lengthy it's going to be, but it's going to involve playing, um, two perspectives, alternating back and forth between the Rebellion and the what remains of the empire the game takes place shortly after return of the jedi which i think makes sense as a time period to put it in that's those those original movies are the ones that are uh, most uh widely i think accepted at least by the demographic that's going to be the primary audience for this game and so that's kind of a safe space to play in but taking place after you know return of the jedi they can introduce uh concepts that would be played out in full, you know, maybe starship models or something like that. Uh, they could start playing with those things uh, that would, you know, in, in that game, since it takes place after Return of the Jedi, or bring back old ships from the prequels or whatever, you know. So I think it's a pretty uh, safe space, safe decision. Um, there are unlocks, numerous unlocks in these games, and there was no word of that being through microtransactions, I think that they realized that they really made some mistakes with the original Battlefront. And I think, wasn't there also kind of an issue with Battlefront 2? I can't remember. There's so many <laughs> controversies upon controversies again and again with EA that it's hard to keep track of them all and when they started making better decisions. But uh, uh, yeah, no word about microtransactions. That doesn't mean they won't be there. What they've said in this presentation is that all these unlocks that are uh, that they're going to be part of the game can be unlocked simply by playing the game. Well, the same was arguably true, if I remember correctly, about a lot of the stuff that was uh, unlocked through microtransactions. Uh, it just took forever to unlock them through playing the game, you know. So uh, with EA, it's a big game of we'll see how it actually plays out. 
Uh, one feature that they seem to really kind of trumpet as the signature feature of Star Wars Squadrons is fleet battles. These massive multi-stage battles with uh, giant command vessels that send out, uh, you know, a bunch groups of fighters, you know, in kind of waves. And uh, each wave kind of has a different um, goal in mind. And ultimately, you're trying to destroy the other, you know, huge command ship. But it's uh, it's interesting, you know how they kind of described that. Uh, so I recommend checking out the video, of course, for more information. But those can be played PvP, of course. They really want to push multiplayer, I think. Um, or PvE, uh, which was interesting to me. I don't know how uh, rich that experience is going to be, but um, one thing that was of note to me is that there are no Force abilities that I could see going on in this game. And I'm guessing that probably in the history of these, you know, Space Fighter Star Wars games, there hasn't been Force powers. That's that's something that would be hard to execute on in a multiplayer setting, uh, because that, you know, the Force is going to, you know, in other games will kind of slow down time, you know, or, or do other things that uh, you might not be able to do in a real-time multiplayer match, you know. But, uh, but it, part of me was just thinking, even though I'm not the audience for this game at all, I'm not going to be any good at this kind of game at all, you know, I thought to myself, you know, there's that that key moment in A New Hope with uh, Luke Skywalker using the Force while he's in a fighter, and it was instrumental in the victory in that one. Um, and uh, I don't know that that uh, there's going to be anything like that in this game. So it seems like a bit of an omission, but I oh will. Uh, and then we had the EA Sports segment, which, again, got my attention not because of the games themselves, but because of how they were marketed, how EA's market research says we are likely to respond well to what they are presenting. Um, and the voiceovers described, which may have been athletes, uh, professional athletes, I don't know, you know, athletes enough <laughs> or at all to tell you whether or not that's true. Uh, but they were saying things like carve your name in history, you know, like when you have these legendary memorable moments in a, a sports game, you know, uh, you car, you know, carve your name in history, 60,000 people singing your song. Um, and another voice over moment said, can't live without that feeling. And so, uh, they're really appealing to significance being granted to us through our accomplishments, um, not through the intrinsic worth that we have because of being image bearers of God. And so I think as, as Christian geeks, we should try to be aware of how, uh, fictional stories in the entertainment we take in, marketing campaigns for the entertainment we consume, uh, are designed to really appeal to uh, tendencies in us that are counter to what God tells us is true about reality, about ourselves, about our worth and stuff, you know. Uh, every belief system in the world, is, uh, well, that's probably too uh, broadly speaking, but uh, nearly every belief system in the world that I can think of outside of Christianity has a works-based system. If there's some kind of reward um, or significance to people, it comes about as a result of their deeds, of their accomplishments. Um, and there certainly are rewards for believers, but our greatest reward and our greatest significance is because of God's love for us and uh, because we bear his image because of a choice that he made, you know. 
Um, so yeah, I think it's worth kind of keeping those truths in mind and because uh, it's easy, I, speaking from personal experience, it's easy to get swept up in the tropes of fiction, which are usually about the, some chosen one who rises from insignificance and through the course of deeds that are epic, becomes extremely significant to the world in which he lives, you know. And so, uh, yeah, that, that kind of stuff is all over the place in the entertainment that we consume. And I think it's, uh, it's valuable to be aware of that. Um, and then the last thing is kind of just a, a, a note about something that wasn't there. It was like, no Dragon Age. No Dragon Age. They even teased it, I want to say, last year or maybe the year before. I feel like we've known that they've been working on it for at least two years now. Uh, and to get nothing in this presentation was a bit surprising to me. Um, not that I am anticipating that I'll enjoy Dragon Age. I feel like Bioware... The people that the developers in that studio, which is owned by EA, uh, that made game the games that I really loved, they left that studio a long time ago. Others have taken their place, and uh, and it just does not have what it used to have. And I think part of that is also being under uh, the watch of uh, of EA and having to kind of do the things that they want to do to serve demographic research and stuff like that but uh, anyway so i wasn't anticipating that i was going to super enjoy this one and i didn't it was kind of boring <laughs> a lot of it um but there were it still triggered some some worthwhile thought and so uh anyway that's all i have to share about the ea play event incoming transmission this week, as I often enjoy doing, I heard from Gabriel Stinson. I'm just going to share an excerpt here where he talked about uh, some uh, PlayStation 5 stuff. He says, I think the design of the console is pretty cool. Once we get one, I will get the version with a disk drive. Long live physical media, he says in all caps. The two games that I enjoyed the, uh, the most were Horizon and Spider-Man Miles Morales. With Horizon, I'm so glad Aloy is the protagonist again. I really like her. I thought it was okay for her to have a chip on her shoulder. That's in response to me saying, you know, that I don't like that she had such a chip on her shoulder. I tried to play her to make the best choices based on what I thought was right, given my beliefs. For me, it worked. As for Spider-Man, I would rather play as the, Peter as the Peter Parker from the PS4 game. I'm connected to him now. I know next to nothing about Miles Morales. I, I will probably like him. I just really enjoyed the PS4 version of Peter Parker. Well, Gabriel, I appreciate your uh, take on Aloy. Um, I'm thinking maybe with the sequel that I'll try to make some dialogue choices, just in general, that will make her more sympathetic. I don't remember feeling like I had much control over that in the first game, reducing the chip on her shoulder. Uh, but there were times where I made choices as I do, especially in the first five hours when I'm kind of like, uh, doing, uh, playing it f in part for review, but also after that as well. Sometimes I just make dialogue choices just to see what the developers will allow, what line of thought they will follow. If I, if I go down this track, you know, <clears throat> I don't think I unfairly put a chip on her shoulder through doing that in my uh, playthrough of the game. Uh, I honestly don't remember, but I, I think that pretty much regardless of what the choices I made, she kind of had a chip on her shoulder, which you observed as well. Um, but, you know, I'm ready to I'm ready to give it a go and see maybe if I can help her be more sympathetic. I also think that since her uh, since we're going to be dealing with a different story arc and she has kind of come into her own, I am thinking that also the writing for her might involve less of a chip on her shoulder. Um, <clears throat> at this point, it would seem a little weird if she had that to the same degree after the resolution 
uh, and kind of catharsis that uh, she experienced at the end of the first game. So we'll see. Uh, I definitely enjoyed the gameplay of Horizon Zero Dawn, though, and I suspect I'll enjoy it even more in the sequel now that I'm a Monster Hunter player. I, When I played through that game, I had not played Monster Hunter World. And as you guys know, Monster Hunter World has become one of my favorite games of all time. It was my favorite game the year it came out. And I've just put hundreds of hours into that and really, really enjoyed it and quickly gained an appreciation for that style of gameplay. And I knew that Horizon Zero Dawn was taking inspiration from the Monster Hunter franchise when I played it. I just had had no experience with it. And so I wasn't as interested in like finding the weak points of the monsters and stuff because you can scan them, find out their weak points and and uh, what kinds of figure out what to use against them. And all that was not very interesting to me at the time. It was kind of intimidating and overly complex and I just wanted to kind of spam blasting them or whacking them or something and be successful, you know. But now I've really developed a taste for that process. And so I think even a, a much lighter version of that um, in uh, in Horizon Zero Dawn will be enjoyable. Part of me wants to go back and play the DLC for Zero Dawn, which I never did. But... The thing that's holding me back is what I heard in reviews about the DLC is that basically it takes away, you know, I think in an effort to kind of uh, keep you from being overpowered, they take away a bunch of like your abilities or upgrades or your armor so you can't bring any of your cool armor. There's something that, that they do to depower you as you come into that big DLC. And I hate that. I hate that in games, you know. It's for the same reason, almost, that I hate superhero stories in comic books where they'll do, like, a story where, oh, he loses his powers. Is he still a hero without his powers? And I'm like, people, I paid money to read a story about someone with powers. <laughs> Show me through other aspects of writing that they are still a heroic person even without their powers. I want the power fantasy. That's why I'm here. <laughs> And after I've built up all that stuff uh, in the in a in a game, I hate having it taken away from me. Um, that's also why I didn't play a lot of the DLC for New Vegas, Fallout New Vegas, is because there was at least one or two DLCs that would essentially depower you um, when when you entered into it. I'm like, nope, no thanks. Um, and I also fear that it would be too difficult and frustrating. You know, I, one of the reasons I like to grind and build up my power is to compensate for my crappy uh, hand-eye coordination skills. In fact, that's arguably the primary reason that I do that. So uh, I, get, I get put off by those kinds of things in, in DLC. But anyway, um, yeah, I, I'm definitely, definitely open and interested in what the, uh, monster, the new uh, Horizon Zero Dawn experience is going to be. As for uh, Spider-Man Miles Morales, I haven't seen him become Spider-Man in the PS4 game yet, if it even happens in that game. Don't tell me, guys. I'd appreciate it if you wouldn't, because um, I'm, I'm maybe a third or one half of the way through that game, and the character has been introduced, but... Uh, hasn't, you know, gotten spider powers yet. But I am familiar with the character. I've read Miles' Ultimate Universe run in the comics. Um, I completed my read of that run. Now I've reached the point where that universe is about to merge with the main Marvel universe. And I don't know that I'll continue following, you know, those characters after that point. But uh, um, <clears throat> now I'm ready to kind of get back into the, the DC universe, maybe, which I'll talk about in a little bit. But um, but I, I definitely do have an attachment to uh, him because of the time that I've spent 
reading his stories. Still, the Peter Parker in the PS4 game is slowly growing on me. He wasn't the Peter Parker I wanted him to be at first. Um, but, you know, like I have with so many other comic book characters and their representations in entertainment media over the years, I've, you know, g- gained an ability to accept that these characters have different interpretations. They are reinterpreted again and again, especially the longer they've been around. DC has some of the oldest characters, but certainly Spider-Man has been around plenty long enough now that we've seen multiple interpretations of Peter Parker's personality, you know. So <clears throat> uh, I, I really might feel the same way that you do by the time I get done with uh, with the Spider-Man PS4. Uh, if I get done with it at this point, um, I, I mean, I'm, sh- I'm going to finish it at some point, I'm pretty sure, but I'm so into turn-based RPGs right now. I'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, but anyway... Gabriel, thank you so much for your sacrificial support uh, as a patron. It continues to feel a bit dumbfounding and strange for you and others to do that. But I am so grateful that uh, for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit is using the work to be helpful and encouraging to you and that you've been moved to consistently be a tangible part of that. That's a big deal to me. So thank you very much. And again, thank you to all patrons who are supporting me. All right, let's see here. Feedback, feedback, guys. Give me your thoughts. Strike up some chat on our forums at christiangeekcentral.com. Leave a comment at youtube.com slash christiangeekcentral or patreon.com slash spiritbladeproductions. You type it, I read it, and might even share it on the show unless you tell me not to or want to be anonymous. That's fine, too. You can also email me a text or audio message at p-a-e-t-e-r at spiritblade.com. I'd love to hear from you guys anytime and most any way. And again, I want to remind you that if you would like some help finding a good church in your area, I would love to help you do that if I'm able. Online resources and communities are good supplements, but by nature they can't speak to your particular situation like relationships in a local church can. The context for almost everything in the New Testament assumes that we are serving and building purposeful relationships in a local church. So whether you're in a church that lacks Bible-based intentionality or not attending any church at all, if I can help you get connected to an authentic, compassionate, Bible-oriented church, I want to do that. There is no such thing, I want to be clear, no such thing as a perfect church. Um, And there may never be a church that you never experience hurt at. In fact, I think that some of the difficulties of being part of a local church are part of what makes the local church so valuable. It's this laboratory where we learn to grow and to love each other despite our differences because of the unifying bond we share as adopted members of the family of God. Um, and so I, I, I want to be clear that, you know, even though I, I want to help you get connected to a compassionate church, uh, that doesn't mean that the church you're at, if you're experiencing difficulty at it, is not a compassionate church. Um, so it, likewise, you know, if you ever want to just have a, a someone to troubleshoot issues you're having with your local church, you just want to talk to somebody about that. Um, I have certainly experienced some frustrations and uh, feelings of alienation and distastefulness with the local church, including the church that I have been going to that I once was a pastor at for a couple of years and that I've been going to for uh, most of my life now, I think, since high school. So the majority of my life, at least. Um, so yeah, uh, anyway, would love to connect with you. You can email me at P-A-E-T-E-R at spiritblade.com and we can talk about what's going on in your church or we can look at some websites of churches in your area together or we can do both. Uh, I would love the opportunity to do that. And now for my geek week, what I've done, what I have planned. Whew. Okay. I've been on a journey this week. Well, first up, 
un-E3. There's just been a ton of un-E3, and yes, I'm doing that for work, but it's a weird blend of work and the stuff that I really love at the same time. So uh, I've certainly been uh, geeking out at uh, a lot of stuff. Uh, one thing in particular, well, no, and I'll get to that thought toward the uh, toward the, the middle of my thoughts here, toward the end of my thoughts. Anyway, um, I've been on a video game journey this week with my personal video game interests. I started out installing Spider-Man PS4 with the intent of playing it. I was like, I, I you know, I kind of feel like that kind of game right now. So I installed it. Haven't played it. <laughs> and that was like a week ago or more that I installed Spider-Man PS4. Never got around to it. Uh, I was enjoying Darkest Dungeon. And uh, was just kind of like, I, I don't know. I was, uh, here's what happened. I was in the mood for something lighter now and then uh, in terms of um, tactical choices uh, not much lighter because I still, oh man, love Darkest Dungeon. Oh man, having so much fun with that. But I was like, you know, let me reinstall Dragon Quest Eleven. You know, because it, part of me was like the tactics are going to be less complicated there, and they're just going to fly by a little bit more. And I and uh, Dragon Quest Eleven, I think, can be a good podcast type of game. I think I might have mentioned that last week. I turned the music off to reduce the some of the brighter elements of it, <laughs> the aesthetics, because I really was not. I'm not in the mood for the cartoony, bright anime aesthetics. I heard that it gets dark around the halfway point, and so I'm wanting to get to that point because I I can't be too far from that. Um. So anyway, I reinstalled that uh, in hopes of kind of getting to that point, and I did enjoy it for uh, a time. For like, I for like at least one full night of video gaming, I was playing that. Maybe one and a half nights of video gaming during the week, uh, and then I hit a dungeon basically where I was reminded of some things I don't like about the way they structure dungeons and um, save points. Uh, I, that, that just kind of was getting a little bit irritating to me. And so I was like, ah, I don't want to be here. <laughs> and then I installed Baldur's Gate, uh, the, the enhanced edition, which I bought on PS4 really cheap a number of weeks ago. I was like, you know, I, I do kind of want that D and D aesthetic too. You know, can I get that? Can I get that? And, you know, I was thinking in the background, Baldur's Gate 3 coming out, you know, maybe it would be good to, you know, play through those games. That was why I bought it to begin with. Cause I was like, you know, I wanted a real-time with pause experience, and I thought at the same time, hey, why not play these first two games, even though there's going to be very minimal connection apart from the setting uh, to to uh, uh, between the these old older games and the new one that's coming out. Um, but I installed it also, never played it. <laughs> and instead, for some reason, decided I wanted that turn-based experience that I was having in Dragon Quest... Um, but I wanted the more of a D and D aesthetic. And so I once again installed battle chasers night war and I'd been having some, uh, some things that were keeping me from really getting involved in that, like invested in that game and really enjoying it as the main game I was playing. And it had to do with the battle system. It's one of those games where your, your healing abilities, your spells only work during combat, and you're also encouraged over the course of combat to build up overcharge, it's called. Overcharge points are given to you during combat, you lose them all at the end of combat, but they can be spent on spells and abilities that you would use instead of using up your mana points, which only get restored by resting at an inn or drinking, you know, potions that you have a finite supply of. And so you're really encouraged during combat to leverage this overcharge that you can earn during combat. 
uh, by making certain choices. And, and I kind of just didn't want to do that. I was like, I don't really want to be worried about doing that and, you know, being conservative with my mana supply and stuff. I, you know, I just want to, I just want to drink a bunch of mana potions when I need them and have the money to do that. But, you know, you, you, you can't, uh, you know, because unless you grind a lot because of the cost, the price of mana potions, they're not cheap in the game. So there was just like some little mechanical things. I was like, I don't know if I'm in the mood to like get into this headspace for this mechanic. You know, I just want to, I just want the more traditional kind of turn-based light tactics, uh, turn-based RPG, but with a D and D aesthetic, you know? And, uh, but I got back into it, and I started learning more about how dungeons were set up and what, you know, understanding some of the other systems more and, and how appealing it is as a dungeon crawl. And just enjoying, uh, th- there's some there's some roguelite elements to it in that the dungeons are randomly generated, um, but they're still going to have, you know, a certain number of, mostly it's the layout that's random. It's, it's the elements in it are still going to be roughly the same, you know, the traps are, you're going to have traps, you're going to have these many of this kind of enemy and, you know, that kind of thing is roughly the same, you know? Um, but I was just realizing, oh, okay, so I can reset the dungeon and grind in these dungeons if I want to. And so I started, you know, being armed with that knowledge, having a different perspective on the game and going back into it and uh, just found myself really enjoying it. And actually, I ended up playing that game for much of the patron live stream this last week um, because uh, Francisco was interested in it. He's a patron that showed up to chat and talked about the comic uh, briefly, um, which, of course, (laughs) you won't be able to hear if you listen to the archived version. Sorry. Uh, But I knew it was based on a comic, uh, which I've never read. And he had read the comic but never played the game. And so, uh, but the game is totally playable and enjoyable without reading the comic. I think it probably would help to read the comic to know who these characters are. Uh, otherwise, you're just kind of like you have to learn who they are as you play the game. Um, but I don't play video games for stories anyway, um, just for mostly the mechanics and the aesthetics. And uh, it was really, man, just talking about it makes me want to get back to it. But I'm at war with myself because there are at least three games right now that I would enjoy playing any one of them, you know, and that would be Darkest Dungeon, Battle Chasers Night War, uh, so there's the turn-based, you know, the typ- more typical turn-based, a little bit more like that JRPG kind of thing going on, uh, but then, in light of Baldur's Gate 3, and just the recent news and the buzz, you know, around that game that's uh, popping up in different places throughout un-E3, I've been thinking to myself, what about Divinity Original Sin? I, I did say I was giving up on that, but do I really want to give up on that? Is there, is there something more there? Because I was just thinking about how those games, Divinity Original Sin 1 and 2, are these big celebrated games that like so many people love and just got across the board these great review scores. And from what I played of them, I see those elements. I see them. But there are just issues that I have with the game that have kept me from enjoying it. Um, One that's probably the biggest one still is quest order. There is no indication about what quests you should take on in what order based on their level of difficulty. Um, In many RPGs, uh, they'll assign a level. They'll say, they'll put a recommended level next to, uh, you know, if it doesn't scale, you know, like Skyrim, that scales to your level. You can take any quest on in any order and they're going to scale it up or down in difficulty 
uh, based on your current level. But in games that don't do that, I always appreciate it when they say the recommended level for this quest is blah, you know. And then usually I like to be one or two levels above that recommended level before I take it on. So I go and grind or whatever I got to do, you know, um, so I'm not stressing. And there's nothing like that in this uh, in this game. And you can easily find yourself given a quest that will direct you to go to an area that you are not remotely prepared for in terms of your level. And I find that frustrating because you just learn by trial and error. You walk all the way across the map and, you know, whatever you... And you can just find yourself suddenly crap in the middle of a fight that obviously you are not supposed to be taking on right now, you know. And so the only way to compensate for that is to use a walkthrough, you know. And uh, I really didn't want to do that. I've really become spoiled in the years since the classic JRPGs of the the SNES through PS2 era um, where I did use walkthroughs there um, to take advantage of all the, you know, absurdly hidden secrets and stuff. Uh, but after, you know, that era, in the 360 era and, and up until now, they've made these big RPGs that um, are much more um, conducive to just exploring, just getting out there and, you know, uh, doing what, trying what you want to do and just seeing what's out there. And, and if you're over level, if you're not leveled high enough, then okay, you know, you figure that out pretty quickly and you can go somewhere nearby and grind or whatever. But it's, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just easier to, to play games generally without a strategy guide or a walkthrough. And so here I was hit with this game. It's like, I don't, I don't want to do a walkthrough again. I was happy to leave that behind, you know. Uh, and then also, there are no traditional shops in this game. You just kind of can trade with anybody. And it's, ugh. I, I find that inconvenient because I can't remember, like, okay, well, who sells this skill? I want this skill. What I would love is to just be able to open up the menus and just be able to pay for it with cash anytime or with experience points or some other kind of weird currency, whatever mechanic they want to give. But don't make me walk through the town and try to remember, does this person sell archery skills? Does this person sell pyromancy spells? You know, just put them in shops. At least just put them in shops. You know, like the classic Final Fantasy shops, you go to the shop, you get what you want. You have the money, you know where to go to spend it and get what you want. But no, they got them scattered all over the place. Some dude, you can't remember, uh, has what you want. <laughs> um, and then the other thing that's been a big uh, stumbling block for me in this game is just in kind of coming back to the quest thing, The your quest log just really doesn't give you valuable information to know what you should do next or, you know, how to complete the quest. It's just... Uh, you know, it's somewhere I, I would I really want somewhere I understand if they want to give me a quest marker and put that on my map and tell me exactly where to go. Fine. But they just do not give you the information that I want in order to know what to do next. You know, and you combine that with the fact that who knows, if I try this thing which may or may not help advance the quest, it may also involve going to an area I'm completely unprepared for. And so there's just two, in, in terms of knowing what you should do next and what you can be successful at doing next in order to advance the game, level up your characters, get, you know, all that stuff. It's just, uh, just too, um, uh, obscured. Uh, so, but I decided, you know, okay, Peter, let's just see what it's like. Let's see if it's going to be as irritating as you think it will be to, uh, have to, to use a walkthrough, you know? And so I found a walkthrough that I liked 
And the first thing I did was is go through and see what quests I'd already done on the walkthrough, you know, because I had just left my game save. I left on that feeling like I don't know what to do next. I am between a rock and a hard place. I am not high enough level for any of the things that I can think of that could possibly advance me through this game some more. And so I went through this walkthrough and uh, it, it took a little bit of doing. I had to dedicate some time that was not playing the video game where I'm just sitting down and going through the walkthrough and like crossing out digitally, you know, all the things that I'd done already. And then when I would come across a quest that I hadn't done, I was like, oh, okay, I didn't know about that. I'll go do that. You know, and uh, and so finally, I've got myself to a place where I'm only looking at the walkthrough kind of intermittently because I realized, okay, I can do this. And then it and then I started seeing some avenues of after exploring one quest or realizing kind of something that I had not done that the developer obviously, you know, thought I should be able to figure out I should do. We just kind of open up some avenues for me. And realize, okay, now I think I don't need the training wheels of the walkthrough for a little while. I think I can go and explore and think and consider and try on my own steam. Um, and and that's worked. And I've had to come back to it now and then like, okay, now I'm kind of at like a, a, a stopping point again. I'm not sure what to do next. And so I've kind of gotten used to a little bit. I'm hoping that more and more I'll be able to let go of that walkthrough and eventually get to a point where I'm like, okay, now, now I'm good. Now I'm good. I, I understand what kinds of things they expect me to be thinking about and trying. It's kind of like playing those old point and click adventure games like Maniac Mansion or something where the what they want you to do or what you know what you what what they're allowing you to do like you okay you got to put this in the microwave and you got to you know da 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 da, da whatever it, it does have a logic to it but the it's it's that uncanny valley where it's like okay i i can see how that's that makes sense that i should be able to do that but like for example in divinity original sin um i was trying to fill up a, a like a a, a a flask last night and i was like why can't i go to the stream and drop it in the stream or have an option in the stream to fill it up you know i, I tried dropping in the stream it was still empty when i picked it up there was no way to do that but i approached a campfire and there's you know and i had a cooking pot and i tried combine and i was given the option to combine the cook pot with the campfire to make a a mobile kitchen basically i'm like okay okay well i just tried that so some weird random things that you try they have anticipated you know but some other things that seem like you should be able to do them um you are unable to do or there's not a a sensible way apparently to do that thing and so um at least with the first divinity original sin um, I'm really coming up on that uncanny valley, valley and it's frustrating, you know. Uh, and so that's why, you know, the walkthrough has been helpful. But uh, anyway, once I kind of realized that the walkthrough, using the walkthrough was not going to be as irritating as I thought it was, then I really started enjoying this game. First off, because I was in this turn-based mood, you know, and it was really working for me, especially since I was over-leveled for some of the quests that I'd missed, uh, the tactics were light, you know, and I didn't have to think too much. And, I, you know, it didn't slow down the, the, the battles. They moved at a nice clip because I was, you know, leveled high enough that it didn't ha- I didn't have to really think super tactically, you know. And I was really enjoying that. I have been really enjoying that. And, uh, uh, and 
getting to the point where I could feel like, okay, now I found this, you know, I've gained enough levels now where I can kind of put the walk through aside and explore on my own and be of a high enough level now to take on some of these things and learn better how to prepare, how they expect me to prepare for battles and, and how they expect me to leverage, what systems they expect me to leverage in combat so that I can be successful. All of those things are slowly starting to come together bit by bit and I'm learning kind of how to play Divinity Original Sin, you know? Um, whereas before, I just didn't have the patience for the the learning curve. I'm like, okay, game, what do you want me to do? I, I have what I want to do. And you guys keep talking about how open and to choice and approaching things however you want. No, not really. Not really. What you really mean is we have a ton of systems and we expect you to take advantage of them in one of four specific ways. <laughs> but you can't really just do whatever you want to do. <laughs> so, uh, but once I've learned kind of what two or maybe three of those specific ways are in general, I'm starting to learn what to look for in combat situations in order to be successful. So it's just that learning process of what the devs want me to do, you know? And once you get through that in Divinity Original Sin, um, it, even though it took me a whole lot of stopping and starting and years on end, I, I mean, this was one of the early games that I reviewed on the YouTube channel. So it's probably like five years that I've had this game. I don't know. Uh, but finally, bit by bit over the years, I think I've gotten to a place now where I'm going to be able to enjoy it and continue enjoying it uh, until I see it through to the end. I don't know. That might change. We'll see. If I hit another wall and battles become more slow and tactical than I want them to be, then I can see myself uninstalling it and moving on to Battle Chasers Night War or uh, Darkest Dungeon again. Um, but for now, oh man, I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying it a little bit too much. You know, I've been reminded this week as I've been just kind of processing, uh, some things that I, you know, that I'm dealing with in terms of thinking about mortality. I've shared this with you guys before patrons, especially have heard me talk about this more in my journal entries and stuff. I'm trying to develop a hope for the resurrection life. Um, you know, as geeks, we are just being told through the way experiences are designed for us and through the way that experiences are marketed to us, we are being encouraged, inundated even, um, with encouragement <clears throat> to embrace the now and pleasures in the now and all the pleasures that this life can offer. Uh, but the more I am inadvertently trained to do that, the less I am content when I am not immediately experiencing pleasure. Um, and I really want to develop um, a hunger for the resurrection life, a hunger for being in the presence of Jesus, this person that I've never sat down and talked with face to face. You know, so, so it's a real challenge to develop a hunger to be with that person. You know facts about them, but uh, you have very, very little in the way of experience and no experience with that person in the way that you have experience with other people in life. Um, so it's a real discipline. It's a real journey that I'm on. And so finding a, a game like this that suddenly I'm super into, which is such a cool thing, by the way, you know, to have a game that uh, you are rediscovering, that you already own. Francisco in the <laughs> patron stream called it a, a summer of free miracle, <laughs> the way I described it. Uh, and, and, and yeah, that's uh, jokingly totally how I would describe it. It's a summer of free miracle. <laughs> 
But when you're in the middle of enjoying something like that so much, it can easily be a distraction um, from a, the kind of journey that I want to be on. Um, so uh, that's been interesting to kind of re- kind of notice that and then say, okay, Peter, hold on now. Um, do not let this distract you from this discipline you're wanting to develop and this mindset that you're wanting to carry with you, even in the midst of having these great experiences, you know? Um, and then also, you know, it's, uh, it's posed a bit of a, uh, a temptation away from, um, what I had talked about wanting to do a couple of weeks ago. And that's finding a game that I really, really love to play on my Vita so that I can sit down with Holly while she's just kind of reading a book on her Kindle, you know, or doing something, watching a show she wants to watch. I've, I've been wanting to find something that uh, I can enjoy while she's enjoying what she wants to enjoy and sitting next to her and just sharing space with her, you know. Um, and uh, especially, now, you know, I'm feeling it uh, more in the last couple of weeks with all this E3, un-E3 stuff going on that my my uh, nights have been getting longer in terms of the work I've been doing. And so even we, I feel like I've been seeing her even less, you know. And we both work at home, you know. <laughs> so um, anyway, so that's another thing I'm trying to keep in mind, you know, uh, even though I'm really excited about Divinity Original Sin. But anyway, uh, as long as I can, you know, enjoy it responsibly and in a sanctified way, I am very grateful for how much I've been enjoying it. And I've been thanking God for that, for wiring me that way, wiring the developers that way. Um, wiring all kinds of things the way they're wired so that it leads to me really, really enjoying Divinity Original Sin right now. Um, let me just get a drink of water here first. Ugh, sorry, guys. Uh, that's what's been happening, man. Been I'm, I'm vocally atrophying because of quarantine and not having to drive my boys to school when I n- have done my vocal exercising for years. I'm used to only having about two and a half months out of every year where I'm not doing that habit. Two and a half months being the summer vacation, you know. Um, But now it's been uh, three, four. (laughs) It's going to be five or more by the time all this is done. I don't know. Anyway, uh, I have been reading the the Grant Morrison run of JLA and uh, enjoying that a bit. Um, There's – I forgot that soon after that first opening story arc – he starts introducing these uh, lesser-known characters. Zariel was like this angel character that was kind of a, a stand-in for Hawkman at the time because they haven't they hadn't really rebooted Hawkman in a way that was working, I think. And so they brought in Zariel um, to kind of be a spiritual stand-in, I guess. No pun intended, since he's an angel. Um, and that you know that was okay. And then also right after that opening story arc. Superman is energy Superman. And you guys remember when he was blue? I eventually became blue and red. There was two Superman. But, uh, you know, he had this story arc where he got turned into energy Superman. And all of his powers were energy-based. He was made of energy. Um, it was uh, kind of a weird time. Uh, and so coming back to that and seeing, oh, yeah, there was this energy Superman for a while. has <laughs> been kind of... Uh, interesting and weird. Um, but anyway, uh, what else here? But it it doesn't last super long, so... I just said super long. And I've been reading the uh, Jeff Loeb and McGinnis. Is it Terry McGinnis? I don't know. The last name's McGinnis. Their run on Superman. uh, Specifically, Return to Krypton, and then now Our Worlds at War. And that run, 
I can't remember which one of those them is the artist and which one of them is the the writer, but the the art style really surprisingly works for me and really surprisingly worked for me at the time. It's very cartoony compared to the art styles that I usually like. I mean, like Superman is very puffy and inflated. You know, he's very, um, like his, his muscles are like so big and rounded. He's, he's fixing to pop. If you, <laughs> you know, it's, um, so I think part of it also was the, the coloring at that time. This was like still the early days or early years of digital coloring. And it's, it's still looks so beautiful and striking compared to the comics I've been reading up to that point in my journey going again through all of my, uh, DC comics in my, in my long boxes, you know? And so it still stands out to me. I still like it uh, quite a bit. And they're doing some interesting things with the return to Krypton deal and kind of reestablishing, re- uh, you know, retconning his origin, uh, at least the aesthetics. In the Man of Steel mid-80s rebooting of Superman, Krypton became this very sterile, uh, emotionless world. Where with lots of uh, uh, weird organic-y crystal-type things, you know. Um, it just had a, a very striking aesthetic. And this story basically said, no, all of that was a deception. Um, and the original Krypton was actually a beautiful world to live in. And Jor-El just altered the recordings that described what Krypton was like so that basically Clark wouldn't be sad and he would be willing to embrace his new home world. You know, he wouldn't be sad for what he'd lost, you know. Um, but now that he's reached this certain point of maturity, you know, he can, re- you know, Jarrell, the recording can reveal what Krypton was really like. And so he and Lois enter this simulation that takes them, or is it a simulation? It's kind of in the phantom zone. So that's kind of a question of like, what are they really experiencing? Is this, is the phantom zone also kind of transporting them through time? Or is this all a, a simulation, a weird ghosty echo? And he's like interacting with both of them or interacting with his parents and stuff. And so it's, it's interesting. It's interesting. And it, and it, um, it made the the uh, retro aesthetic uh, that they were bringing back, like the 1950s representation of what Krypton was like. They were kind of bringing that back and updating it in some subtle ways, but it still looks very retro. And they were kind of making it work for me. And I have always enjoyed that when comic book creators can take old ideas that are thought of as outdated or cheesy or dumb or whatever. Jeff Johns is an expert at this, in my opinion. They'll take these old ideas and they will modify them just a little bit or they'll present another side to them or another facet to them that uh, suddenly makes them cool and uh, feel like uh, not dated and not, you know, boring and irrelevant and stuff, you know. And I, I don't think the Return to Krypton story exactly did that. Uh, but it was, it was neat and I was open to it, you know, and now I've just started into our worlds at war, which I'm not sure it hasn't quite hooked me yet. Um, so jury's still out on whether I'm, I'm going to end up skimming my way through that one. What I did read this week was Doomsday Clock Volume 2, which arrived in the mail, uh, toward the beginning of the week. And now I've read the entire Doomsday Clock story. I'm not going to give spoilers on it. I'll just kind of give some emotional reactions. Basically... This is the story that uh, merges, as you learn very early on, so this isn't a spoiler, that merges um, the Watchmen universe with the main DC universe and has those characters from that story interacting with characters from the main DC universe. 
And uh, that was, you know, that's fine for me as a novelty. I don't really need that to happen. I think it's kind of interesting. Um, and I think they did a pretty good job. They really put a lot of effort into mimicking the the style in both writing and art of the original Watchmen. Um, they clearly studied that book, both from the, the artistic standpoint and the st- storytelling structural standpoint and the, the standpoint of prose and how certain characters are written, how, like how Dr. Manhattan is written. You know, it's, um, it, it's a really uh, faithful stylistically um, story to the original Watchmen story. But that that wasn't really what pulled me in. What pulled me into this story was the the buzz that this was supposed to reset the DC universe in a way that would correct what I see as some of the mistakes that were made when the New 52 launched. You know, there were characters, I won't get specific here, but there were characters that were removed um, or killed or just wiped from existence um, as a result of the events of the New 52 and uh, this story was going to basically um, correct a lot of those and bring those characters back in some way. And that, to me, this, this story, in my mind, it's the, it's the reason I launched my Essential Issues um, YouTube series and that I also share on this podcast. Uh, because I heard about this thing. Um, it, they started the story, I want to say, a couple years ago. It took a while to tell it. There were some delays and stuff, you know. Um, but it was supposed to, you know, fix those things. And so I was like, okay, well, while I'm waiting for that story to complete, because I didn't want to invest in buying the individual issues. I wanted to at least get them in hardcover, which would be cheaper than getting them all, or trade paperback. I ended up not waiting for trade paperback. I got the two volumes of hardcover. <clears throat> But I was thinking to myself, let me, while I'm killing, let me kill time by doing this YouTube series, you know, going back and reading and uh, my, what I consider my essential issues of DC Comics, you know, uh, and working my way back up to where I left off with the New 52. And I thought that I would get through those quickly enough that, uh, you know, I, I would, it would coincide about with the, being able to, to read this uh, Doomsday Clock story. That didn't work out. I've been, <laughs> it's been taking my sweet time to get through uh, all of what I consider my essential stories of DC Comics history. Um, but I, I decided to read the story anyway. Um, and at this point, without, again, giving any spoilers about the story, what I would say is that they repaired enough of what I would consider the damage of the New 52 that I am definitely open to... Uh, seeing what DC does next. I don't think I will ever go back to buying comics on a weekly basis. I think I have too much enjoyed the financial benefits of waiting until they're collected in trade paperback and then waiting until that trade paperback is available used uh, and getting so much bang for my buck that way. Um, I have you know, been able to really lean into my video gaming hobby uh, with my fun money as much as I have for the last six or seven years since the new 52 launched um, because of dropping my regular weekly comic book uh, habit, you know? So I don't think I'll ever go back to buying them weekly, but they have, they have positioned the DC universe with a status quo that is not completely reset to before the new 52. 
but in a lot of ways is, you know, um, and certainly enough so that I'm like, okay, this is now lined up with kind of what I wanted and valued about the DC universe, you know? Um, so what I'm planning to do at this point is, uh, is by, instead of like continuing with the Marvel, uh, ultimate Marvel stuff that I've been kind of reading, uh, I really leaned back into the ultimate Marvel universe when I dropped DC, you know, cause I did remember liking that, uh, those books. And now I've basically finished reading, all the way up through where um, the the universe merges with the main Marvel universe. And rather than continue with that, I think I'm going to go back and just do some Google research. I've already done uh, some to see, okay, what are the big kind of game-changing stories that took place after the New 52 before Rebirth or maybe, at, you know, through Rebirth as well, basically between the launch of the New 52 and um, and Doomsday Clock. What are the big status quo changing stories of my favorite DC characters with a focus first and foremost on Superman, even though I wouldn't call him one of my favorite DC characters, I do find that when there are celebrated Superman stories that people are like, oh, you should read this Superman story. I'm always glad that I read them and I always enjoy them, you know, Um, and so like the stuff about how he and Lois were in, I guess, some kind of pocket universe and had a baby, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I want to read that story about when that was revealed and how that played out and and how the new 52 universe Superman kind of died or something. I think I might read that too. Just like how they started course correcting with, with Superman in particular, because he of all the heroes has had enough weird, you know, like course corrections uh, going on over the last handful of years since the new 52 launched. And so I want to get caught up on the major beats of that. <laughs> And then also, um, you know, then then catch up after that with some of the other major status quo changing stories for like Green Lantern and Flash and, you know, some of these other characters and catch up with them. Um, And then uh, and and then eventually catch up to after post Doomsday Clock and see what stories, you know, sound interesting to me. So um, I am now very casually, very slowly, I should say, very intermittently. Uh, I think I could call myself a DC fan again. Like, I'm ready to read new DC stories. You know, even, I think, before I'm finished doing my Essential Issues series, you know, I think I'll probably start dabbling with uh, some of the newer stuff. Um, So... Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's kind of where I'm at with my comics these days. Uh, I did play for those interested in board game stuff. I did play some Pathfinder adventure card game, the mummy's mask this week. It's still been sitting out on my table. I have not dedicated any serious time to it, but what I found myself doing, um, because my, my workout station, this, there's an, I've got a, a Bowflex that a neighbor of ours put out on their street like a year ago and said, take it if you want it. So I dragged it home and set it up in my office. <laughs> and it happens to be right next to just across from where I have that game set up. And so in between reps, I will do like a turn <laughs> of, uh, of Pathfinder. I'm, I'm sure that as a result, I'm not pushing myself as much as I could in my workouts, but, uh, Oh, well. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I am still really enjoying that. Looking forward to taking that with me on our vacation later this summer, you know, uh, and just kind of like having that on a table somewhere, um, you know, while people are all hanging out in a common area, you know, maybe just putting that out and um, and enjoying some time with that. It's a fairly portable game. You know, it's just cards and some dice. And so 
you know, I've, I, last time I used a, um, a Magic the Gathering long box um, uh, to put cards in for that game, and, and it became much more portable than the big, huge square box that the games come in. So uh, looking forward to playing more of that on my vacation. And then here's the thought I was going to get back to when I was talking about UNE3 and uh, uh, video games and stuff like that. Uh, because of the demos that I've been recording this week, I have been forced to really buckle down and figure out um, streaming for PC games and how to stream PC games. And alongside that, I've discovered that even though my PC is not optimized to play, you know, the the, the new big hot AAA games on PC, it can handle a lot more games than I thought it could. And it can certainly handle... Um, uh, a lot of the more indie, you know, uh, games that don't have big sis- big demands, big system requirements, because maybe they're pixel graphics or 2D or, you know, whatever. Um, and then on top of that, the, maybe the most important element is I'm discovering how much more common it is today, at least on Steam, for games to have full controller support. Um it's, uh, I mean, the last time that I was really kind of exploring PC games was years ago, and it just was not, I'm seeing now, not near as common as it is today. Uh, and that is awesome. And so what that means is like, oh, crap, here I am really enjoying three games on my PS4, and now I'm suddenly realizing that uh, there might be a world of AA or indie PC games that opens up to me now. Uh, that I don't have to wait for them to come to PS4 because they, I, my my PC can run them, and um, and they have full controller support. Um, so uh, I may be reviewing more PC games in the future than I than I have done in the past. I mean, we'll see. I, it, I think PS4 is always going to be my go-to. A console is always going to be my go-to because I can more easily put on like a YouTube podcast or something or have my PC available if I want to jump, find a a quick answer online for some question in the game I'm playing, you know, and that's going to be harder if I'm playing a game in full screen on my, uh, on my PC, it's going to just be a little bit more of a, an inconvenience. Yes. Maybe just one more inconvenience I can learn to adapt to and, you know, discover, Oh, it's not that big a deal, but right now it's still a point of hesitation for me to really, uh, throw myself into PC games. All things considered, I'm always going to prefer to have them on, on console. Um, but I've been amazed at like how many of these games I just fire them up and they work. I can't tell you how many times in the past, uh, I used to try playing PC games because I could only play them on PC, and there'd be some driver thing, something I gotta update, something I gotta non-update, some troubleshooting thing I gotta look up online and figure out how to fix before I could freaking play the stinking game. Um, but that just with these demos, at least, uh, has really not been the case. You know, it's been really easy to get them up and playing real quick. You know, so. Um, and that also means that it's very likely at some stream in the future that makes sense, I will be playing Neverwinter Nights. I have not played Neverwinter Nights in my live streams for years because I was just like, ugh, it's, it's a pain, it's a pain, and I gotta use totally different settings and stuff. Well, I have gotten into the practice this week of like just switching from, you know, those from one type of setting for PC to another for console, and uh, um, I, I, yeah, I've just gotten used to what those settings are and what I need to do that I think maybe even in the middle of a stream, I could without too much hassle jump over and play a game on PC. And I figured out there were some problems that were with how I was capturing PC 
games um, on my PC and, and recording them or streaming them that were causing it to just not work at all and just like get a black screen instead of the game footage, you know? Um, and I figured out the, 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 the fix for that. Um, so yeah. Uh, so a lot's, a lot's happened this week. This has been a very big week for me in terms of my geek interests, <laughs> lots of kind of game changers and different things and thoughts going on. Um, anyway, as far as what's coming this week, I think this weekend I might try to watch Watchmen, the HBO series, it's free all this weekend on HBO.com um, as part of their kind of support of the Black Lives Matter movement and the 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 in wake of the the death of George Floyd. Um, that's they're kind of putting it up and and it does as as I mentioned in my review, it really deals with um, with uh, racism and you know I'd have to watch that review again. But I, I think that when I, I mean, I can certainly say that when I watched that review, I did not appreciate how present uh, a problem racism still is, you know. Um, I just have not been exposed to it. I live in a predominantly white um, uh, neighborhood, and I'm also not in the habit of like being social and going out and meeting tons of people. And so I'm already going to be limited in the number of people that I run across, you know? Um, but I just, just was not aware of just how much of a, a thing this is, how much of a common experience racism still is. It's hard because just as a side note, you know, sometimes there are these, um, you know, the, the, the racism issue is unfortunately, um, uh, often associated with the political left. And, uh, I think that, uh, you know, that those on the political right side of the spectrum, those that are more conservative Christians, certainly, um, especially since they were, uh, instrumental in, uh, ending, um, slavery, uh, in, in, uh, different parts of the world and, uh, both, uh, in, um, America and in, uh, in England, um, Anyway, uh, it's it's a it's a movement that's associated with the left, and the the left can often be just putting their you know agenda things and hammering their agenda things in entertainment to the point where I'm like, you know, uh, this is not. Sometimes they'll put things out there like this is not the the big deal you're you're making it out to be. You know, they'll overblow things. You know, uh, frequently, um, and so uh, it's been easy for me to think that. Uh, that the, the, the racism issues are just one more thing, you know, they're kind of, um, beating a dead horse and stuff and, you know, overblowing it, you know, um, but I'm seeing that it's, it, it's, uh, that's seems to be not the case. Um, I'm sure there's, there's a, t I mean, there's a ton of nuance. There's a ton of nuance. So I hesitate to make any big broad statements, but anyway, um, all that to say, I, I wonder if my, um, my thoughts on how they handle the topic of racism, if I uh, wouldn't just see it as much more relevant than I did when I watched it the first time. Um, but certainly, either way, it was a very interesting opening, and I was have always been interested in watching the rest of it. My plan has been to buy it on Blu-ray and just watch it, uh, you know, at my convenience, So, which still really appeals to me compared to binging it. I think it's like nine episodes. I don't, I'm not sure if I can give nine hours plus or whatever the, the runtime is and however many episodes there are. I'm not sure if I can cram it all in this weekend, but I might at least, uh, you know, flirt with that idea, see how many episodes there actually are. Um, but, uh, Divinity Original Sin, definitely on my agenda for the weekend. And, uh, I also want to, uh, really make sure I'm carving out time to 
play Darkest Dungeon on my Vita and sit with Holly. Um, I think that's going to be valuable, especially this weekend, because last weekend I kind of lost to Un-E3. I was just doing a lot of Un-E3 stuff. Uh, and, and, you know, Monday came and I was like, it's Tuesday, right? It's got to be Tuesday <laughs> or Wednesday even, you know, because I just kind of blew through that weekend without really getting some uh, a, a break. There's just so much going on. Um, so there's still some Un-E3 un e3 stuff happening this weekend um but i'm gonna i think i'm gonna try and minimize what i do over the weekend because i could really use just a break and some rest so cozying up with holly on the couch while she reads something and i play darkest dungeon sounds really nice right about now um so yeah that's it that is my geek week and that is all for this week, guys. Stay tuned after the credits for B5 Shorma with Adam David Collings commenting episode by episode on one of his favorite sci-fi shows, Babylon 5. Or you can jump back to episode 575 if you want to start at the beginning. Next week, if God allows it, uh, I'll be sharing a review of the movie You Should Have Left, which is uh, being released digitally today, Friday, as I record this. I was originally going to put it as a part of this episode, but I just couldn't fit it in. Uh, so I plan on doing that for next week's show. And the review, the YouTube review, will probably go up on Monday. That Monday is the big window that I have available to watch and review that. So you can keep an eye out for that. I also hope to review a video game called uh, The Tower of Time, which has been on PC uh, for a while, but it's coming to PlayStation 4 this coming Tuesday, unless... I haven't been hearing much about it, but everywhere I look still lists the release date as this coming Tuesday. Um, so I don't know if there's been a delay, if I'll find out there's been a delay or not. And then shortly thereafter, like just days thereafter is also coming to Xbox one and switch, I believe. But, uh, it's a real time with pause, uh, D and D aesthetic style RPG. And you know that I'm all about freaking that. Uh, I kind of hope that it's not so good that I'm distracted again from, uh, Divinity Original Sin, because I figured out how to enjoy that game finally. So, <laughs> reviewing this one is a little bit of a risk for me in terms of my own personal geek interests, but, uh, you know, I, I can't resist. I can't resist. So, <laughs> hopefully, if I have time and if it releases, uh, you'll get a review of that from me next week. And then just more Unne3. Oh my gosh. The Cyberpunk event is next week. The Avengers event is next week. There's two more digital events that are going to be coming, covering a potpourri of games. Some of them indie, some of them maybe more double-A and stuff. And and then the second installment of our Summer of Free 2020 celebration, showcasing movies and this summer in particular tabletop games that you can enjoy for free if you have an internet connection and in the case of the tabletop games, a printer and just a little bit of ink, not too much, hoping not to uh, uh, demand uh, much from your ink printers as I uh, select those games to showcase. I don't think I'm going to be able to do all this stuff, guys. Uh, you should plan on something not making the cut next week. I don't know what. <laughs> I'm looking at this list, thinking about the week I just had. Uh, so maybe dial back your expectations <laughs> from what I just said. But anyway, till then, please consider supporting the work of Christian Geek Central and Spirit Blade Productions and earning some fun rewards by becoming a Spirit Blade Insider of any subscription tier over at patreon.com slash spiritbladeproductions. Uh, I'd also be grateful for positive reviews wherever you find this podcast. Uh, thank you so much for making time for this show, and in particular, this what is likely to be a mammothly linked show. Uh, <laughs> I hope you have a great week and that you'll join me next time here on the Christian Geek Central podcast as we continue to geek out and seek the truth. What?
The Christian Geek Central Podcast is a community-supported endeavor of Spirit Blade Productions. This podcast is produced by Peter Fremson with support from the Christian Geek Central community at ChristianGeekCentral.com. For information about the latest entertainment and resources from Spirit Blade Productions, visit SpiritBlade.com. Thank you for listening. the same anymore. Why do I still have to remind myself that she's Why gone? don't you eliminate the entire non-homeworld? Stand between the darkness and the light. Declaring martial law. Tell my own government wants to kill me. Get off their encounter-suited butts and do something. Any crew that executes an order like that is guilty of war crime. Being a freedom fighter is a wonderful thing, but the pay sucks. Oh, we're screwed. Now get the hell out of our galaxy! And that was Gropos. The description on the Lurker's Guide reads... Dr. Franklin's father arrives, leading 25,000 ground-pounding soldiers on the station. The troops' arrival elicits fear from both humans and non-humans that the troops may be going on a secret mission that will involve the station becoming an armed camp. And this episode first aired on the 8th of February 1995. This is a good example of how to do a standalone episode of Babylon 5 properly. First of all, even though it's a largely standalone story, it still has connecting tissue with the greater plot elements around it, in terms of character relationships, as well as making reference to the major plot elements of the season. Second, well, it's actually a good story. Gropo is short for Ground Pounder. These are the soldiers of Earth Force, equivalent to the US Marines. We get to see the true military side of the Babylon 5 universe here. Now, you could say that Sheridan, Ivanova, and the rest are military officers, and you're right. They're more like the Navy. But B-5 is a diplomatic station. You just don't hear drill sergeants yelling at the troops or, you know, marching and chanting. You get all of that here. This is primarily a character episode. Yes, they're planning an attack on an alien world, but we don't actually see the battle. It's just the aftermath at the end. So an Earth Force ship arrives full of Gropos. They're on a classified mission. Sheridan has to find billets for 25,000 people for several days. Glad I'm not him. The leader of all of this is General Richard Franklin, Stephen's father. To my knowledge, we never hear of the planet Actor other than in this episode. They're in the midst of a civil war, and Earth Force has pledged to help the government in their fight against the rebels. Sheridan has been on Actor before, so he helps Franklin plan the invasion. While he's here, Babylon 5 is equipped with the latest weapons from R&D. With the Narn and Centauri now at war, you can't be too careful. So we get the first meeting between Dr. Franklin and his father. The general is meant to be retired, but he's back in the saddle. Stephen says that his mother will worry. Your mother worries when I eat a hamburger, the general says. I found that kind of amusing. You can tell their relationship is very awkward. Stephen talks a little about his work. There are more species of aliens coming through the station every day. He's needed here. The general has some interesting attitudes here. He wants his son to work in the bio-research division of Earth Force, creating biological weapons. Stephen was forced into that kind of work during the war, and he hates it. He's a healer. Then heal humans, 
his dad says. I know you're fascinated by these alien creatures, Stephen, but they're a threat. And we see there's this deep ideological divide between these two. Life is life, Stephen says. If you respected them instead of murdering them... And before he can say any more, the conversation is over and Richard walks out. General Franklin, Frank, General Franklin has got some racist ideas here, which is kind of ironic coming from an African-American character. Clearly, aliens don't have the same value as humans to him. That may not mean that he thinks they have less intrinsic value, but they clearly matter less to him personally. And then there's this whole question of murder. General Franklin is a soldier. He's taken lives in the course of his duties. Stephen describes this as murder. And this raises the question, is there a difference between killing and murder? Or perhaps more accurately stated, is all killing classified as murder? And I think we'd probably have to say no. Take Laura Rosen in last season's Quality of Mercy. She took the life of a serial killer in an act of self-defence. We would generally not think of that as murder, and she was exonerated by the court. And yet she still felt a sense of guilt for having taken a life. I totally get that. I think I'd feel the same way as if, if I was ever in that situation. Human life is so very precious. In fact, there is nothing more precious. All people are made in the image of God. And the Bible tells us that he desires that all will be saved. To cause the life of a human being to end, I mean, especially if you know that that person doesn't have a relationship with Jesus. Man, that's a heavy thing. Anyway, getting back to this episode, as soon as the words come out of Stephen's mouth, I think he realises they were unfair. His father isn't a murderer. Of course, it's too late now because his dad's gone. General Franklin discusses this with Sheridan. During the Battle of the Line, Sheridan won the only victory Earth had against the Mimbari. He admits that the Mimbari probably view him as a murderer for this act. But it's not how he sees himself. But the Mimbari were the enemy, not your own flesh and blood, Richard says. And we get a little insight into Sheridan's relationship with his father. They've had plenty of disagreements when their principles have clashed. They've had fights, but they never stopped talking or loving each other. I like this, because we're seeing here a good father-son relationship being modelled. Fiction is replete with dysfunctional families. After all, fiction relies on conflict. But it's nice to see a healthy family. Sheridan and his dad have a solid, loving relationship, and we'll see a little more of that as the show goes on. But speaking of dysfunctional relationships with fathers, Stephen and Ivanova have a chat. The general is a good soldier, but a bad father. He treated his soldiers... Sorry, he treated his kids like soldiers when he was around. Of course, when he wasn't around, Stephen talks about watching the news vids to see if his father was alive or dead. Man, that sounds like no way to grow up. He brings out this anger I can't control. I do love him, I just can't talk to him. Susan shares that he had, she had the same thing with her dad. She encourages him to find a way to talk to his dad. She didn't, and when her dad died last season, she lost that chance. I like this. It's tying back to previous story elements, but it's also showing consequences. In this case, a positive consequence. Susan learned something from her experience, and she's trying to help a friend to avoid 
making that same mistake. So they finally talk. And the general finally starts to realise the effect that the military life has on the soldier's loved ones. This is something that he often forgets. Now, I can't possibly do these scenes justice just talking about them, but if you've watched the episode, you'll no doubt agree that it's all very moving. It sounds clichéd. The military father who is distant from his son, and he treats him like a soldier. But the execution just feels anything but cliché. I know that, Painter, you like stories about adult father-son relationships, so I think you'd like this. Okay, the other major character plot in this episode is about Garibaldi and Dodger. Dodger is a female Gropo. She first meets Garibaldi when she defends Delenn from some bullies. You can kind of understand why these guys might be offended by a Mimbari who walks around looking human. They see it as an insult to the millions of humans killed during the war. That certainly doesn't excuse their behaviour, though. Dodger is immediately attracted to Garibaldi. He takes the evening off and gives her a tour of the station. So what do you want to see, he asks. First, a good restaurant. Then, your quarters. Well, she's not forward much, is she? Now, think about how a normal show of the day would proceed from this point. We'd have our woman of the week romance, and then she'd go off. No real point to it, really, to be honest. (laughs) So we cut to Michael's quarters. The minute they walk in the door, she's all over him, taking off her jacket, kissing him. She's pretty aggressive, and it's blatantly obvious that she wants sex. And Michael kind of plays along to an extent. He kisses her back. Clearly he's attracted to her. But then he puts the brakes on. Garibaldi wants to slow down. He explains that his personal life is complicated. He talks about his history with Lise Hampton, how it hit him hard. And then he mentions that something is starting to grow between him and Talia. He got shot last year because he wasn't watching his back. He has a tendency to mess up when things are important. Maybe you and me have got something, or maybe someone else. I don't know. I don't want to blow it by going too fast. He wants to think things through. And this is interesting. TV and film usually hold up casual sex as a good thing to be celebrated. Here, we're seeing a character, our atheist character at that, wanting to apply some wisdom and not just treat sex like a game of tennis. He's wanting to respect Dodger as much as he's wanting to protect his own heart. Whenever somebody tries to uphold sex as something special or precious worth waiting for uh, within the confines of marriage... They're usually dismissed as clinging to outdated religious ideas. But I think there's got to be people out there, non-believers, who from a purely practical point of view can see the wisdom and benefit of holding sex as something precious, not to be used lightly or frivolously. But here we deepen Dodger's character as well. We get some insight into her as a person and why she just wants to love him and leave. I didn't come to set up house. I'm a gropo. One day I'm cleaning latrines. Next day I'm standing in blood, waiting for the round that will take me out. In between, I like to get what I can to remind myself that I'm alive. Sure, it's not romance, but it's all I've got time for. I'm so sorry it's not enough for you. And then she storms out. Being a gropo sounds like a really sucky life. I can't think of any reason that someone would want to do this other than out of a sense of duty, wanting to serve for their life to have some meaning. It, it, it makes you realise that, you know, people, people in the real world who do work in the military, you know, it's probably quite a sacrifice. 
All right, so there's there's one other little uh, subplot with Kefra and his roommates. Not much to say about this. It gives some nice development of the two Gropos, and it culminates in a bar fight. I've never understood bar fights. It starts between two people, and then suddenly everyone just randomly starts hitting each other. It makes no sense to me. That said, this bar fight is not played for laughs. It comes out of character. These are soldiers itching for a fight. They're restless. Well, now they have the chance to put that aggression to use. They're leaving for their mission. And then at the end of this episode, we see this eerie news report showing the devastation after the battle. We've spent all episode getting to know Dodger and Kefa's buddies. And as the camera pans over their dead bodies, man, you've got to feel something. War, huh? It sucks. <laughs> Well, that was a brilliant character episode. It's actually a lot better than I remember. Back when I watched the show on VHS, each tape had two episodes, and this was one on a tape with The Coming of Shadows. Now, Coming of Shadows is obviously a big game changer, and that's why I bought the tape. I tend to view Gropos as the other episode on the tape that I bought for Coming of Shadows, but I've got to say, with all this character stuff, I'd probably hold it up as one of the best of season two. Well, the next episode is one that has long-reaching implications. I'll see you next week for All Alone in the Night.